Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. I'm honored to have you here. My guest today is James Pearson. James is one of the world's best trad climbers. I don't think he would ever say that, but it's true. It's really hard to think of anyone who has a more impressive trad resume than James. And this was one of my all-time favorite interviews. I really enjoyed talking to James. I've followed his climbing for a long time. He's one of my favorite people out there in the climbing world. He's just an inspiring guy. He's really insightful, and he just keeps getting better and better at climbing. He's 37. He's climbing the hardest he's ever climbed in his life with two kids, It's just so cool. I really hope you guys enjoy this one as much as I did. We did talk a lot about E-grades and we really got into the weeds with that. If you get bogged down by that at all, just scroll down to the timestamps and find the part where he talks about becoming a dad. I loved what he had to say about that and I thought the last hour of this podcast was especially good. So be sure not to miss it. All right, let's dive in. Please enjoy James Pearson. Okay. That's good. I'd forgotten to unplug the fridge. Can't have the fridge on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it makes a lot of noise. Is yeah. It? yeah you, all these little things that you don't notice when you're just living in a space uh, yeah. start to become very noisy when you record podcasts in that same space. You're like, oh, man, wow, the fridge. The fridge is incredibly noisy all the time. Yeah, it must have been quite... I have to like... How do you talk with with headphones in? I can only I can't do it with two two in. It feels so weird hearing my own voice. Oh, because you oh because so you have, to have one in. You can hear your own voice in the headphones or or no? But it's more just like it feels like I'm talking underwater or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's these headphones, but I guess you get like noise canceling ones that have like the active pass through. Right. Maybe, maybe that would work, but these are just really cheap. And rich. I can hear myself. I'm I'm listening to um, myself through my recorder. So I can hear myself oh, through okay. the microphone. So that that makes all the difference. I, I can't stand talking on a Zoom call with headphones in if I can't hear okay, yeah. my voice so that's why I'm, I'm just going to have one in. Just do one. It'll be, okay. it'll be kind of okay. <laughs> yeah, whatever works cool. for you. Cool. We're here. We made it. <laughs> yeah, we did. It's great Thank to you see you. Patient. Oh, of course. No worries. I, I, yeah, I appreciate you being willing to move around. And, and now we have a great setup here. Sounds great. You look great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you say that to all the girls. <laughs> no, I have to be careful. I can't say it to all the girls or else people, I don't know, that just, yeah, I'd be sending mixed signals here. Um, yeah, I only flirt with the guys on the show. I don't want to, I don't want to flirt cool, with Cool, but you can say it to all the guys for me as well. <laughs> this is really fun, man. I feel like I know you. Um, I wonder if a lot of people who are my age feel this way. And and it's interesting. I, um, I expected, I, I always reach out to people before I have guests come on, right? I reach out to my patrons and say, you know, James Pearson's coming on. Yeah. Here's a reminder about all this awesome stuff he's done. Submit your questions for James. And um, I didn't get as many questions for you as I expected based on the familiarity that I have with you because I grew up watching climbing films. I watched, you know, all the feature films that came out and and now, you know, it's only been a handful of years, but everything has shifted. We live in this YouTube world and everything's so fast moving that if you're not like a comp climber in the headlights or or headlines or a boulderer in the headlines all the time, I'm like, maybe, maybe a lot of people don't know 
who James Pearson <laughs> is, which is crazy to me. A lot of them probably do. A lot of the people that have been climbing for a long time, I certainly do. Um, but I, it got me really excited because I want to share more of who you are and your story with my audience. But I, I feel like I know you because I watched all those feature films. You've been in so many great films over the years. And um, I don't remember what the first one is, what the introduction was, but you know, I watch all the real rock films and maybe it was the year, I think it was like 2014 or 15, but there was a segment with Daniel Woods um, climbing with Yuji Hirayama, right? Like you guys all go mm -hmm. to... Yeah. Um, Monkey Nibbalu. Exactly. And, and uh, you're, you're sport climbing and like putting up roots at high elevation in the mountains. It's like incredible. And then there was a bonus segment from that featuring you and Caro who are also on the trip. And uh, what was it? Excalibur? Was that the arete that you climbed? You did a first ascent. It was yeah, absolutely exactly. stunning. Such a cool looking route. And I watched that segment so many times because I just loved the the banter and like the kind of the vibes between you and Caro. And it was so fun. And and maybe that was was what kind of led me to do a deep dive on James Pearson. And I watched all your early <laughs> grit films and um, and all this stuff, you know, like the the early trips with Caro where you're kind of you know, she's this amazing competition climber and sport climber, and you're introducing her to this wild world of adventure trad climbing and stuff. Just so much fun. And then the redemption story, I think that was maybe the first I'd heard of any of that. Like I, you know, being an American and being outside of the UK scene, I just, I just didn't know about all the drama when it went down. So kind of learning about that retrospectively, but anyway. And I guess on like one, one, way that's pretty good for me that you didn't really know about all of the drama <laughs> with me early on well i'm sure it feels like the entire world hates you right when something like that happens you're like there's God. definitely a moment yeah there's definitely a moment and then you realize you know just stop stop having this kind of poor me syndrome there's there's way worse things out there just get on with, with yeah it. But, um, yeah you're not wrong but you're also like i mean give yourself some grace for feeling like the world was ending, you know, because we live in this crazy world now where when the internet decides that, that you did something wrong, I mean, the result of it can be more damaging than, than like an actual conviction of a crime or something. I'm, I'm, I've never been in that situation. So maybe I'm completely talking out of my ass here, but it just like, it, it can really feel like everyone turns on you and it can be incredibly psychologically damaging. Like this is just, you know, me reading articles about this kind of stuff um, and talking to people who have been through it, but there's no like judicial system. There's no trial. You don't get to speak your mind and like share your side of things. You don't get to talk about yeah. your truth. Everyone just like jumps on this, this pile on. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I've only, I've received like minor criticism about a couple episodes that have come out and I, I, like my brain was stuck thinking about those comments for like weeks, you know, so I can only imagine. Oh, I completely hear you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, yeah. Well, I think one of the, one of the key things that I've learned is to try and turn off to all of that. And the easiest way of doing that is just not getting involved in the first place, which is kind of difficult when my life is supposed to be that of a professional climber. Right. And a life of professional climber these days is all about, you know, putting yourself out there on the internet and especially social media and, and answering to, to all these fans. And, um, you know, sometimes these fans can be kind of mean and sometimes I don't want to answer to them. And sometimes I don't even want to read it because I just like going climbing. So it's really about trying to figure out this, this balance. And I guess that's probably that word. There's probably the key to, um, all of my major discoveries over the last couple of years is about just, you know, trying to put everything into perspective 
um, taking a bit of a step back and looking at the bigger picture. Mm. I'm so excited to dive into all this, man. So um, this is the first time you and I have talked like this, but we exchanged some voice messages back and forth on WhatsApp. And I was listening to like, it was so perfect. You left me like 20 minutes worth of notes and I was just like making my outline while I was listening to you and just thinking like, man. It was a pre-podcast. It was a pre-podcast and it was perfect. And it just made me feel like, this is everything I want to talk about with you. And and if you're willing to share it like this in a voice note, I just can't wait to actually have these conversations and, and dig into all this stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm super happy to to share this with you. I awesome. think um, for me, it's one of the, one of the comments you just made about, you know, the, the internet kind of has this ability to judge us, you know, without a trial kind of, um, I feel like a, a lot of the time I just kept my head low and accepted it for, for what it was and just tried to get on with life. But I feel like I've got to a point where I've realized that, yes, I mean, I made a lot of really stupid mistakes and I, you know, to one extent was my own worst enemy. I kind of caused a lot of this, but there was also the way that the pe- people treated me, you know, it, 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 it wasn't very cool. And, um, I feel like in 2023, we've we've moved such a long way from the way that we saw the world back in, when was it, around the walk of life, around 2008, 2009. You know, as a society, we've really come on in leaps and bounds. Yeah. Um, and I think it's okay now to talk about these things because we can all hold our heads up and maybe accept some of the things that we did poorly a long time ago. And hopefully, you know, all just become better human beings before it and maybe don't make the same mistakes or don't make people feel like we've made them feel, um, you know, a decade or, or even more ago. So yeah, now's, yeah. now's a good time to speak about all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's interesting. It's so interesting how it's come full circle because you've climbed this route bone voyage and we're going to talk about it in this uh, conversation for sure. We're probably going to jump around because I do want to go back in time and walk people through your story. Um, I'm assuming that some people have watched James Pearson, A Redemption Story, that video. Redemption is the name of the film. It's on Vimeo On Demand, I think. I'll link to it in the show notes for people that want to watch it. It's it's an amazing film, uh, 2014, I think. But assuming that actually, a lot of people... Um, go ahead. It's also actually a, uh, like a, a Real Rock, um, like mini, mini episode that they did for Real Rock TV, which kind of takes the whole hour-long version of redemption and just condense it down to 20 minutes or something I okay think. so for people with really short attention spans out there <laughs> that's a good a good place to start if you like to if you like three-hour podcasts but only 20 minute videos this will be perfect for you exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing um but yeah it's it's interesting how it's come full circle because now you've done this this trad route which might be i don't i'm this is my words i'm not i'm not trying to you know put words in your mouth here, but it might be the hardest trad route in the world. It's certainly top two or three, certainly. And you didn't grade it, you know, for a while, which makes perfect sense. I'm just thinking like, man, if this is, you know, I don't think you would give it an E grade because this route's in France. You can tell me how you're thinking about that. But if if this is the hardest trad route in the world, of course, he's going to be really shy and really hesitant to propose a grade based on what happened last time, right? Like this is a long time ago, but once bit twice shy, right? Like that's the, that's the common saying, and that would make total sense to me. Um, but it was really fun to hear in your voice messages to me that you've thought about this a lot and you're planning to propose a grade for Bon Voyage. And I love that. I think that is important. Like, I do think that 
for you, especially as a professional climber, inspiring the rest of us, showing us what's possible, it makes sense to have a number attached to that. I could also see like why you and I watched this great like 10 minute video with you and um, Jacopo um, Larcher, like talking about tribe and, and talking about why he didn't grade it. And you kind of went along with that and didn't propose a grade yourself. And I totally understand not wanting to reduce an amazing, beautiful story with a route and a beautiful piece of rock and a whole journey with a climb down to a single number, right? Like that's what the media wants. They just want to know what's the number. And it's like, no, this was an incredible route. It's a, it's like a, it's like a magic piece of rock. It's a miracle that the gear exists, that this goes on gear. Like it's all so much more than just the number. So I, I understand 100%. both sides of that, but I also think like, if this is the hardest route in the world, let's freaking talk about how cool that is. You know, <laughs> like I want to know what that grade is. So anyway, um, but yeah, I completely understand why you'd be shy. And I, I do feel so curious to hear why you've finally decided to propose a grade and um, why that feels important at all versus just completely letting it go. Um, maybe let's yeah, cool. start there and tease people with that. And then this will be a little bit like the movie Memento. I want to bounce around on the timeline here and go back to, to Walk <laughs> I love, of Life. I love that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I think it took me about three three times through it to actually figure out what was going on. So hopefully this podcast isn't going to be the same. But, so more, um, more downloads for me. That, yeah, it's good. <laughs> so basically... Um, my main reason for not grading roots, uh, and this is something that I've I've done quite a lot over the last 10, 10 years or so, um, is is really that it's really to get people talking more about the actual route itself rather than just this this number we attach to them. Uh, and I know that grades can be really important to a lot of people out there. They're they're important to to me as well. But I just think there's more things to talk about not necessarily that are more deserving than grades but we seem that we live in a society or at least a climbing society that's just obsessed by by this one singular thing and so by kind of forcing people not to get what they want maybe it also then inspires them to go looking at things from a different you know a different set of eyes a different perspective um but the other way you can look at it is that it's a total cop-out and um I used to, you know, disagree with that wholeheartedly, but I think in the last six months or so, since I've been doing a lot of you know, self-reflecting on, on Bon Voyage and what all this means to me, a lot of the stuff that I've been doing over the last five, ten years has been just to to try and keep myself safe, to to protect myself from something like the walk of life ever happening again to me. Because it was such a hard thing for me to go through, and it well, it, I mean, it de it defined the direction that the rest of my life was going to take. Mm. And I can never say that I wish it didn't happen because without it, I'm not sure I would be here today. Um, but it definitely, yeah, it definitely took a lot of, a lot of soul searching and self-development to feel okay about all of that. Mm. And so, yeah, when I, when I originally climbed Bon Voyage, I, I think I'd always planned not to grade it just because I hadn't, I hadn't graded tribe um i hadn't graded some of my other first sense before before that and kind of felt like this idea about getting people to talk about the line and the the moves and the beauty of the, of the climb was sort of working but at the same time i kind of i had my gut feeling about what the line might be um and the number especially in e-grades that it that it might deserve at least from my own point of view 
And the idea of putting that number out there again was what truly terrified me. And so, you yeah. know, sticking to this, this kind of predefined path of not grading things was definitely the easy, easy way out for me on, on Bon Voyage. Mm. And then the more people I spoke to, um, you know, not necessarily anonymous people out there in, in, in cyberspace, but people that I kind of know and care about and, and trust, the more of them told me that I think this would be a really good thing for you to do, you know, to try and come to terms with it all. And I began slowly to feel like they might be right. You know, I don't know, especially when it's Caroline telling me something like this. It takes me, normally it takes me a few days to come around to the fact that she is probably right. <laughs> and she usually is. Um, mm -hmm. But there was a big difference between accepting these people's opinions and being brave enough to actually do it. Mm. And um, I guess we'll talk about this later on in, in, in the podcast and we can sort of delve a little bit deeper into all of the history and why it might have been so so tough for me but um yeah the that that number the grade of the grade of e12 just represents so much to to me um it was something i didn't want to throw around lightly mm, of course of course yeah you said something so interesting in one of your voice messages you said that um you know you you'd found yourself in a position again to have to put a grade on what is potentially one of the hardest trad routes in the world. And you said you thought you had left all of that redemption stuff, referring to that film and walk of life behind you. And then doing this route and considering putting that grade out there again, just brought everything flooding back. And you realized that there was a lot more there to work through. So let's talk about that a little bit. And then, and then, yeah, we'll, we'll back up the timeline here, but, um, what came back up for you and when, like, how did it hit you? And, and what did you start to notice after completing this project? So around 2014 was when I climbed this route called Rhapsody, um, which again, I don't know how, how much you want me to say right now, how much we're going to delve. Should we just dive into the, in, should we just go back in time? Yeah. So, okay. Let's do that. So basically, um, Okay, Rhapsody is Rhapsody was the first route that was ever graded uh, E11. Up until that point, there'd been one or two confirmed E10s and several proposed E10s that hadn't yet been been repeated, or you know even a few E10s that had then been downgraded. And then came Rhapsody, which was this you know huge big deal for the for the UK track climbing scene, and this was around 2005 or 2006, I think. And then. Um, at that point in my life, I'd started to climb some fairly hard routes on the grit zone in um, in the middle of the UK. This is where I grew up, where I really learned to climb. And um, I'd actually put up a few of my own first ascents. I'd repeated a route called Equilibrium, which was the, the world's first E10 and the hardest trad route in the world when that one was climbed. We're going to say hardest trad route in the world a lot in this conversation. So <laughs> sorry to the listeners if it gets a little bit, a little bit boring. Um, mm. And then... I basically ended up putting up another one of my own first ascents in a completely different part of the country, a completely different style uh, to all of the the routes that I climbed before. Um, the just in hindsight, I, you know, I, I realized that the route didn't suit me, and this is why it felt so hard. But at the time, I just thought that it was hard because it was simply hard, and I was so. Um, one of the points that you made earlier, and you know, about, about me saying that this might be one of the hardest track routes. Out, out there in the world, if not the hardest, is something that I really try and stay away from these days because 
if I've learned one thing over the last 15 years, it's that my hardest is only ever going to be my hardest. And, you know, it depends on so many um, outside factors, you know, whether or not you're, you're good in this style, um, uh, you know, how, how strong are you in this, in this grip strength, in the length of the route um, and all, you know, loads of other different factors. So I really try and just focus on myself. That's not supposed to sound like really egotistical, but yeah, yeah. Just I can only control what I can what I can do, and I can't. I don't have any control over over other people. Right. Um, so you're more li- you're more likely to say this is the hardest route I've ever done in this style. E- exactly. Compared exactly. to it's the hardest in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so I climbed this route called the Walk of Life. I told people it was the hardest trail route in the world at the time. I gave it the never before given grade of, of E12. Um, I'd actually been to try this route called Rhapsody, which was the only 11 at the time. Um, I'd failed to do Rhapsody. I'd come up with some bullshit reason that I didn't want to climb the route because, uh, I thought the line was contrived, that the route was somewhat eliminate. Um, and you know, I wasn't in climbing for those kind of reasons. The base fact was that I couldn't, I knew deep down that I couldn't do the route, but I actually didn't, I didn't want to admit that to, to, to people and, and to, the, to the climbing world. I don't think I even wanted to admit that to myself. So all these things blur together in, in, you know, inside my memory bank. But I think at the time, I actually convinced myself the reason I didn't want to climb Rhapsody was because I didn't want to, not that I couldn't. Anyway, so I graded my route E12. And then shortly after that, a whole series of first ascents that I'd done, where you know the grade of this, this, this route, the walk of life, had somewhat been based upon, were repeated. Some of them were downgraded. And then Dave McLeod, the first ascensionist of Rhapsody, went to try my my route repeated it in very short amount of time a walk couple of, of days life. yeah and, but yeah the walk of life and basically told everybody that it, it really wasn't that hard so that's probably about two years of my life summed up in what two minutes <laughs> yeah. we, we did a good job yeah we did you here. did a very good job i'll chime in and add a couple more pieces of context yeah. um not to bog us down here but just just to you know clue people into the timeline again rhapsody around 2005 walk of life around 2008 James is just kind of exploding onto the UK trad scene in this time, just cruising through, like you talked about repeating these routes, but you kind of cruise through all the hardest great routes period at the time. And you're like a teenager kind of coming into your early twenties. And then I think you did walk of life around how old were you? Early twenties, 22 or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, yeah. So you had in a way, like it makes, it makes sense where your thought process was at. And I, I watched a video about this where you got a little bit more into your uh, psyche and you're thinking about it and it just it just makes sense or I, I, yeah I, I don't know where I heard this I can't remember maybe it was in one of your voice messages but just about how the walk of life was such a far cry in style from what you had done you know in, instead of like these instead of a really short really intense grit route that's like basically a highball boulder problem with a death landing or whatever you know these are the some of the things that you had done before all of a sudden you're climbing like a 50 meter sea cliff. And, and for people that recognize that name, Walk of Life, I talked about it quite a lot with um, Anna Hazelnut because she's done that one and she's done the route to the left once upon a time. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and and I have a I have some thoughts about that, talking to Anna about this too, because what, what an incredible accomplishment from her. But yeah, to your point, like it's such a different type of climbing instead of, a short, really intense, I don't know, 10 meter grit thing. All of a sudden this is a 40 meter slab where 
you know, it, it takes you an hour to lead it and you just think you're going to die the entire time. So like what a different psychological space you had to enter into for this route than anything you'd ever done before. I can kind of like, yeah, yeah it I just makes sense so. like where your head was at and why you would think it was such a next level. But of course, like, you know, the news comes out, then Dave McLeod climbs it, thinks it's way easier than the grade you proposed. And all of a sudden, you know, all the nuance is lost. The internet just comes after you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think with um, with hindsight, was it we say with hindsight all vision is twenty twenty? Mm-hmm. Like everyone sees perfectly when we look when we look back, and I can look back now and I can see exactly where I went wrong and how all this could have happened. Um, and I think partly that was to do with with me and my own sort of mental place in in the world at that time. I was just I was just, you know, searching for for recognition. I can remember as a kid trying all these new these new sports. Um and I was always just obsessed about getting as good as I could, as quick as I could to become somebody in that world. And most of the time I I'd kind of run up against a little hurdle and I'd just move on to something else. And then eventually I found climbing and it just seemed to really fit. And for the first, you know, several years of my climbing life, I was just going from strength to strength to strength. And, and so I was there climbing all these, these hard routes, like you rightly said, on, on the grit stone, which is a very, very specific climbing style. And I developed this sort of, can't really call it a technique, but it was like almost like a mental strategy for, for climbing these incredibly scary routes where when I'd, when I'd actually get on the sharp end, when I'd get on the lead on these, on these things after normally the hardest routes on the grit stone are done after some top rope practice. So you might spend, you know, hours or days or, or weeks, however long practicing these things. And eventually you feel you're ready and you go for it on, on the lead. And a lot of these routes that I did toward the end of that period of my life, I wasn't even really able to top rope them. Um, certainly not regularly. Some of them never at all. And I just rely on this feeling that I knew or I assumed would appear when I got on the lead, which was this like bubble of peace and 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 tranquility and hmm. where I'd be stronger and, and I'd feel more focused. And I basically just turned into this super climber, or at least, you know, a super climber for, for me. And I'd be able to do moves and sequences that I couldn't do or even really conceive of without this this magical thing happening. And this is what allowed me to climb these really pretty intense routes on, on the grit. And it's what I relied on to, to get myself up them. And then on the walk of life, it just, that bubble burst because instead of being, you know, two or three minutes of climbing, it turned into an hour and the style was completely different and the feelings I got were completely different. So everything that I'd built and, and learned and prepared for, you know, to, to deal with this kind of intense level of stress that you get when you're on a really dangerous route just didn't really work anymore. Because that's why I personally found the route so hard. And then in addition to all of that, it was a time before, you know, social media really existed, or at least not like we have today. Um, and it was still a time when kind of magazines and climbing movies really ruled the, the the climbing media world. And so I was there, you know, as this young sort of 18, 19, 20-year-old kid, having done all these pretty hard routes on the grit surrounded by this group of people that were constantly telling me, you know, whether they believed it or not, or they were just trying to make me feel really, really, really good. Kind of made me feel a bit like I was God's gift to climbing. Mm. And, you know, I was friends with all the magazine editors. So I got tons of 
a very positive coverage in all the magazines. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that really disliked me and what they thought I stood for and represented, but I never, for all intents and purposes, I never heard from those people. Like they basically just didn't exist for me. And so whilst we, we, we've clearly got echo chambers still in 2023 and it's still a big problem. I don't think they were any, they're anywhere near as soundproof as whatever I built for myself <laughs> back in 2008. Mm. Like I just was so into myself and my climbing I couldn't imagine a, a world or a scenario where the walk of life wasn't the hardest thing in the world because of how it had felt to me. Mm. So that's how I got there. It doesn't mean it, it, it it's right. right. It doesn't make it any, totally. any less stupid. Yeah. But at least I can kind of justify it to myself and, and understand why it happened. But you can be, yeah, you can be compassionate towards yourself. You can look at it in hindsight and be like, Okay, I was I I was under, you know, I was under experienced in these different styles. I didn't have the broader perspective of a more experienced climber, but I wasn't being dishonest. Like I wasn't just trying to get attention for attention's sake. I literally I I, you know, literally thought that this was the grade and I justified it to myself and my justification kind of made sense based on where I was coming from at the time. Like, yeah, that that all makes sense and it must feel I don't know. I don't know how it feels. How does it feel to to just look back and how did it feel to, I guess, put those pieces together and to understand like, okay, I was a little naive, but I did do my best at the time. I think the, the key word you just used was compassion. Um, and it did, it took me a long, a long time to feel compassion for myself again, because my, although I th- Although I genuinely feel like, and this has stuck with me the whole time, and I think is one of the things that kept me kind of kept me going in the right direction, was that I genuinely believe that I'd always acted with integrity. It took me a really long time to feel compassion for myself again, because although I felt like I'd been honest to myself, climbing was everything for me. And the, you know, my entire world revolved revolved around climbing, and I built an image of myself that you know I really liked. I liked who I thought I was as a climber. And so when, when Dave came and, and repeated the walk of life and, and basically gave his honest opinion on it. Um, and that was effectively to say that James didn't really climb anything quite as hard in a global um, sense as he thought he had. It, he, he called it E9, right? Yeah. He called it E9. Mm-hmm. Um, he, it made me like question everything, everything that I thought I knew about myself suddenly mm. was just up in flux and i didn't really know who who i even was as a as a person anymore because of that and so what what happened immediately after that is that i think at some at, at some point i realized probably why it it felt so hard to me was because i was just massively underexperienced in that particular area in fact i was massively underexperienced in pretty much any area that wasn't climbing on the gritstone um which which is quite a lot of climbing styles when you kind of come to think of it. And so I realized that I needed to, and there were a lot of things that I needed to fix if I wanted to continue living this this amazing life as a professional climber. And um the the main, the main, the most glaring thing I needed to work on was my sport climbing fitness. Because growing up on the, the grits, as technically it is, as hard as it can feel, it's very, very rarely actually physically difficult. Um it's often, you know, slabs or slabby arets, and you can really get around a lot of physical strength and especially endurance just by climbing well. But 
put me on a sport route and I was terrible. And so because I was terrible, I never went sport climbing because I disliked it, as is often the case. And um, and so after the walk of life, I realized that, okay, you know, maybe that's something that I can work on that will probably do a lot of good to my climbing in general. And then once I've got that dialed, we'll we'll look at some other stuff. Mm. Unfortunately, getting that dialed wasn't quite as simple as I thought it would be. <laughs> I thought I was really struggling in the UK for lots of reasons at that point, um, partly because the way that the climbing community had, had made me feel or was making me feel at that time actively like it, it was kind of unrelenting um because the climbing community I'm, I'm sure it's the same in the states but the climbing community in the uk especially the trad community is really tiny and so although you don't know everybody you feel like you're connected to all of them mm-hmm. you know you, you probably know somebody who knows somebody and wherever i looked it just seemed like there were reminders of 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 the walk of life and of the this massive downgrade and of how all that was making me feel and whilst i, I think i did I made a few efforts just to just to close myself off all to all of that and go climbing. And I, I did, did some pretty cool routes because of it. Like I managed to one site a route called End of the Affair, which was an, which is an E8 on the Gritstone. Um, and at that point, E8s on the Gritstone, I think it, I think it might have been the first on site or one of the very earliest. Um, and that was kind of just a bit of a, you know, balls to the wind. Maybe I was a little bit, I don't want to use the word depressed but maybe caring less about the consequences and just going out and doing something because it made me feel something more than just sad. Mm. Yeah. You, you hit fuck it a little bit. You're <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Totally. And then, um, but at some point I realized that I couldn't continue or it felt like I couldn't continue my life in the UK. Um, and so I wanted to move away. And I also saw this as an amazing opportunity to go somewhere completely new where people you know, probably didn't, know my name yeah know anything about trad climbing and so i chose the place to me that represented the best sport climbing and competition uh climbing area in the world at that time and that was innsbruck in in austria you know when this sort of austrian team were basically untouchable um and so i moved out there with this this hope of just turning up and drinking the kool-aid and suddenly becoming an amazing sport climber overnight which unfortunately you know it didn't it didn't quite work out like that um and what actually happened is that for the first six months or so of that let's say experiment kind of felt like the more i tried to get better the worse i got at climbing because i was basically i just gave up on trad i gave up on bouldering which i was also relatively good at back in back in the time and um concentrated 100 percent on sport climbing and training but i didn't know anything about about training i didn't have anybody to follow um, it was also a time when there was kind of a lot of training advice just coming out on the internet, but going in every sort of crazy direction. And so there's me who's just desperate to get better. I'm kind of grabbing at whatever I can. I'm trying like a different training protocol for, you know, a couple of weeks. I'm getting frustrated that I'm not seeing any, any results. So I'm changing to another one and then I'm getting even more frustrated. And so the more I feel like I'm trying to get better at this thing that I'm really, really bad at, the worse I'm getting at climbing in general because I'm not going bouldering, I'm not going trad climbing, I'm not working on any of my strengths. And um, it got so it got so bad there in Innsbruck. And I was also in a new place, you know, surrounded by new people and exciting new opportunities. 
the best things I did were to go mountain biking and skiing loads, which are obviously not particularly good for climbing. And the worst things I did was to get really into partying and just spending all my nights out on the town and everything that goes with that that world. And again, with hindsight, I think that was all just a way to escape from what I was feeling at the time, which was still pretty miserable from the UK. And then also genuinely feeling like a complete failure because whatever I was trying to do to get better at climbing, because I really wanted to get better at climbing, just wasn't working. Mm. And I think that's the point in my life where I really thought it might be over, that I'd probably come as far as I could as a pro climber. And I should just be happy for what it had given me already, which was, you know, already an incredible life. And at, you know, 23, 24, maybe just be time to time to move on and do something else mm. and then uh and then luckily i met caroline which you know was it seems very convenient <laughs> when i talk <laughs> about it now how how she just appeared at that right moment yeah um i actually wish she'd kind of appeared a couple of years before that <laughs> so i wouldn't have had to go through any of this shit but um <laughs> she was really there when i needed her and mm. when when the two of us actually met we were we were actually in Turkey. Um, she, so she was a full-on com, uh, uh, competitrice. Uh, basically, she was in the World Cup on the World Cup circuit. She'd been there for almost ten years at this point. Um, she had some amazing results already, and she was fully in that in that world. She knew nothing about about trad climbing, um, any, or really any climbing outside apart from sport climbing. That she did quite a lot. Um, but she just had like a full on tendon rupture and she'd had surgery on one of her fingers. And so she'd been out of climbing for three months. And before starting the next season, she wanted to go and just have a chilled climbing trip somewhere. So she ended up at this, this place called Antalya in Turkey, which is kind of, it's still an amazing sport climbing place, but for a couple of years, it was really like the new place to go, um, over, over, over this part of the world. Uh, and we were there on a North face expedition which sounds kind of funny that, you know, the North Face would send an expedition to this sport climbing area. But I think, you know, they'd managed to sell it as this sort of daring trip to a place that was like, you know, over somewhere near the Middle East. And, um, and it was maybe at a time when for part of the world, and I'm, you know, I'm not only meaning Americans here, but... <laughs> <laughs> I think you guys had like a, a different interpretation of the Middle East to what Europeans had for quite a quite a while. Sure. Anyway, we ended up in in Turkey, basically on what was supposed to be a hardcore expedition, and it was like spring break. You know, we had this gorgeous <laughs> apartment. Everyone was just getting drunk every night in the bar, going out like climbing some sport, amazing overhanging sport routes in in the day. And I was so bad. I think I was probably at my worst physically my worst place ever i mean from during my professional climber career i mean obviously when i started out i was i was probably worse but for a pro climber i was really 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 bad and um and for some reason i ended up just climbing the whole week with caroline and we disagreed on almost everything <laughs> we came from completely different worlds she had no idea what trad climbing was i had no idea really what's what competition climbing meant um i remember one time she 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 told me that she thought that i was a pig because i explained like my theories about um kind of life and, and dating and all that sort of stuff and 
at some point she was like, you'll be a great friend, but a terrible boyfriend. And, um, and after that trip, we ended up just keeping in, in, in contact. Nothing was supposed to happen. And she ended up coming to stay with me in Innsbruck because she wanted to go, to train. And we basically, yeah, I'm not going to go into details right now, but <laughs> we, we began what is now a, yeah, fairly lengthy relationship. And we're married since 2013. We've got two kids. And she totally saved me. Mm. Not just because from a climbing point of view, I mean, that, that was, a, that was amazing and really changed my climbing life. But more than anything, she told me that I, she showed me that I could be somebody better than I'd been before. Um, and I think we were both going through an important transition phase in, in our lives where she was coming toward the end of her competition career. And she'd realized that she wasn't the, the person that she wanted to be the way that she treated other people in this, this competition, um, realm wasn't particularly kind or thought or thoughtful and it was the way that she had to act or the way that she'd been taught to act mm, um a little more cutthroat through all these these years of, of, of coaching completely cutthroat and she was like i don't like who i am i want to be somebody better mm. and i was obviously you know searching for some meaning in my life and, and a way to move on from things that happened in the past and the two of us yeah we were i think we were really really good for each other and Carol basically, yeah, she, she, I thought at that point I was training. One day I came back from the crag after having like fallen off my project again. And she was probably in the gym for like a second session. And I was moaning like we Brits are pretty good at, at doing that. You know, all this training I was doing wasn't working. I was really frustrated. And she kind of sniggered at me like French people are pretty good at doing <laughs> as well. And she's like, Oh, what you're, what you're doing. It, 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 it's not training. You know, it's, you're just playing with your friends on the rock. That's what she said. And um, and I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, if you want to train, just ask me and I can I can help you. But I'm going to promise, I need to, you know, you need to know three things. It's going to be painful. It's going to be boring, but it will work if you stick with it. And I was just like, yes, please, please, please. Like, give me all, all the secrets. And so I started basically following her training program, which was, you know, clearly not particularly suited to me, but... Are you in Innsbruck at this time? In still in Innsbruck, yeah. Okay. In comparison to what I've been doing before, it, it just applied some science and some structure. You know, it's it's not rocket science training. It's often dead simple, but you just need somebody who knows what they're doing and what they're talking about, and you need to kind of almost have a blind faith in them as an athlete that your coach is is going to get you to where you need to be. And with Caro, that was super easy. I don't mean to. And, yeah. uh, don't lose your spot yeah, here because I want to. I want to continue with this. But what were you doing before? Like when you were just on your own in Innsbruck, thinking that you were training but not actually training. What were you doing? Were you just going to the gym and just climbing until you were exhausted and you know insanely pumped, and then doing it again the next day? Like what? What did that look like? Why is it that you showed up to Turkey in such bad physical form if you were, you know, if you e thought exactly. that you were training? Yeah, 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 exactly. So I was, I was just ex like you said, I was going to the gym. I was climbing until I was completely exhausted, except the next day I wouldn't do it again because I'd wake up and I'd feel a bit tired and I couldn't be bothered to go back and do that again. So I'd go and ride my mountain bike for a bit or I'd, you know, I'd, I'd go travel somewhere and go and see some, some fancy foreign city and, uh, you know, go, go clubbing or something like that. And, uh, and then I'd come back a week later and I'd go to the gym again and I'd, and I'd do another hard session, just, just climbing in the gym. And I, I guess I maybe I saw some of the exercises that the 
Austrian team were doing. And I guess I kind of tried to emulate that. But since it always felt really hard to me, I always ended up just falling back on what I kind of liked to do mm. <laughs> rather than what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. And so I just found myself in in the boulder gym trying to do sort of boulder circuits, but basically just working on my bouldering uh, as always and, and not getting any better at, at roots. And at some point before that in the UK, I remember being sure that laddering on the campus board was going to be perfect for endurance training. So I was just trying to do that, but then it was too hard with my feet off. So I just do like feet on lad- campus laddering. And I got really fit at like feet on ladder campusing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, I mean, it just didn't transition to to rock climbing because you do various different moves and you it's, yeah, it just really daft, daft things. Well, that's, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, again, I don't mean to make you lose your track here, but that's interesting because that is an exercise that Steve McClure recommends for topping off your power endurance. Like that's something that made a big difference for him for his sport climbing. So I'd probably, I'd, I'd probably heard about that from Steve. Yeah. Um, Cause I don't know if I was, I knew Steve at the time. I don't know if we were particularly friends at the time. Um, Cause he was still like a superstar and I was kind of nobody, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I would have either spoke to him directly about it or read about it. But I think the, the problem was is that it's great for topping off your power endurance. And I do a similar exercise today uh, on a fingerboard, like fing- fingerboard repeaters. And I find that's amazing for my power endurance today. But what I didn't have is any base mm. to my endurance. Gotcha. And that was the problem. What I basically, like the st- a lot of the stuff to do, we, we talk about that nowadays in, in training. It's becoming kind of popular, this really low intensity, high volume stuff just to make sure that your body's actually circulating the blood well enough. I didn't have any of that. Mm. And so I could, I could do the high end, high intensity stuff, but it didn't stop me getting pumped in, you know, two minutes on a, on a really steep route. Yeah. Uh, And that's kind of the base, especially when you're trad climbing on those sort of pumpier, safer style trad routes, that ability just to hang on for days is what really counts because it's a lot, slower style of climbing mm-hmm. um and so moving really fast on a campus board it didn't look at all like the climbing that i that i was doing that makes sense um and so yeah and so so i was following i was following caro uh and i think just to put this all into a little bit of context i guess when i met caro so in the past i'd climbed one 8b plus a 114a sport route uh, when I was probably around about 18 and it was in the Peak District at Raven Tour. Very, very short, very, very bouldery. So it really played to my strengths. And since then, I don't think I'd even climbed another 13D. And when I ended up in Turkey with Caro, the whole trip, the highlight of it, of my trip, was a 13A, I think. And that was first day on site and i got i think to the third bolt i realized how pumped i was and i was like there's no way that a professional climber should be falling off a 13a and i don't know how i did it but i just hung on (laughs) for dear life and somehow got to the top of that thing and the rest of the trip i didn't climb any harder than it even (laughs) even red pointing i was done like i'd spent everything i had um and then And I was most of the time climbing with Carol on those days. And I can remember falling off some like 7B pluses and 7Bs that she was warming up on. 
Um, but instead of being, what was really funny, instead of being embarrassed about that, like I'm, I'm, I can be quite a sensitive person when it comes to climbing in front of other people and what I think people think of me. But for some reason with Carol, we didn't, I didn't have any of that. I just loved the fact that I was climbing with this super inspiring woman who was putting the quick draws in my projects for me. I <laughs> thought that was flipping amazing. And I just saw how hungry she was for climbing, you know, after coming back from a three month layoff from a, from an injury and surgery, she just from dusk till dawn, that's all she wanted to do. And I was just like, wow, that is amazing. I think I remember one point in my life when I was motivated like that. And I wish one day that I can find that again. Mm. And that was probably the beginning of it all of finding that motivation, which then took me back to Innsbruck, uh, with her, we started training together and then from in six months from basically falling off seven B pluses in Turkey with her, I went to climbing my first eight C and eight C plus. Um, so 14, uh, B and, 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 uh, 14 C. Yeah. And then a year after that, I climbed my first nine A. So what? 14 D. How? <laughs> yeah, it was mental. I don't know. Seriously though. I like what know. did she have you do? What was it that made the difference for you? Cause that, that is. That's incredible. And I remember reading about that. I think it was when you did your 9A. I was like, oh, well, that didn't take him very long. Like, you figured it out, you know, because I, I had remembered you talking about how maybe bad of a climber you were with the sport climbing side yeah. of things and, and whatever. Yeah, that's incredible. How did you do that? What did she have you do? Uh, I, I, I still don't really know. <laughs> um, yeah. I think it was just what I said earlier, just about getting that base that base endurance in check right say it got it became good because it's still to this day it still isn't good i think i really feel like the things that we learn as a teenager um when our kind of bodies are developing and changing so much i feel like those things stick with us for so long and it's really hard to break that cycle and so i i believe i will always be a powerful somewhat technical climber and i'm always going to be worse at in pure endurance efforts um, and I think there's a physiological element to that, but I think there's also a men mental element to it. Like I'm just, I, I'm just really, really bad at digging deep and going through those pain barriers and mm. just not letting go. So I listened to a, a podcast actually that you did with Pete the other day. And Pete was saying that as, um, as a kid, that's all he did was just these long, long endurance sessions. And that's what he considers to be one of his, his strengths. Maybe he's even superpower. And I think that feeds so well into crack climbing for him that just you know you're not going to fall off you're only going to ever let go but god it's so tempting to let go when it hurts so bad <laughs> and i'm yeah. i'm a terrible terrible crack climber and terrible off width climber and i think i've got a much better crack and off width technique than caro but she's a way better off width climber than i am because she just does not give up mm. whereas i'm like oh it feels bad like i feel sick oh, i'm just going to slide out of this thing whereas she just from those years of, of competitions where it was all it came down to was holding on a little bit longer, grabbing that next hole, touching that next hole, because maybe that was going to be enough to get you into final, like fighting to the death. She's so good at that, those styles of climbing where you have to really fight. And I, I see that to this day when I'm on a sport route now and I kind of have an idea of how pumped I need to be to be able to do the top of it. If I get to a section in the middle and I feel like I'm more pumped than that. It's really hard for me not to just give up because I kind of think, what's the point? I'm going to fall off above. 
instead of just really trying because sometimes when you really try hard like this 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 route in turkey like miracles true miracles can happen and you can find <laughs> yourself at the top of these things but you've got to actually try and so that's that's what you know my own burden to bear but basically what caroline did is she just she just added some structure to my life so instead of going climbing one day and then doing some other stupid stuff for a week and then coming back to climbing and doing a bit more like every every day we were climbing we were just treating it like a professional athlete should treat a sport or i was treating it she already was um and i followed i just followed her her training cycle well i didn't follow it i followed probably about somewhere between a third and a half of it because i realized pretty quickly that if i followed her actual training uh, program i would just break myself <laughs> i didn't have all those years of conditioning before totally before that. yeah um <laughs> and so yeah i just i just followed her we went sport climbing a lot which is something that i'd almost never done before because i was so bad and so i hated it so much and when you stop being so bad at something it actually kind of becomes quite fun it's always a bit sad how like our um perception of fun is so much linked to our own performance totally in an element yeah and this is something that i've really managed to i feel like i've managed to make some big progress on in recent years and we can talk about it it later but yeah, sport climbing back then with with Carol was just flipping amazing because I got to go climbing with the person that 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 I love the most and love spending time with and just watch her be amazing and I just tried my best to emulate that. <laughs> most of the time I wasn't amazing, I was far from it, but I was getting better every session and that that was so inspiring. And so I think in that maybe 2 years or something then after the walk of life I basically found myself in 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 that one year I I not only climbed my first 9A, but I also went to a place called Pembrokeshire in the UK, which is an amazing track climbing area, but it's a track climbing area that is very much more towards a sort of sport climbing style end of the spectrum. So it's generally good gear, generally harder routes, uh, more more pumpy routes. And so yeah, maybe what a lot of people might not understand, I'm not sure how important this for your for your listeners, because you know, you guys don't use e-grades over there. But E-grades are what we use for grading trad routes in the UK. And it's there's this often sort of misunderstood component of it where people just assume that the higher the E-grade, the more dangerous the route has to be. Right. Um, and it's not actually at all like that. It's any any single E-grade can have the full spectrum of, of danger and difficulty mixed together. So you could have an E1 that is death on a stick. You know, one slip, you're going to be off and you're going to die. You could have an E10 or even harder where you could literally fall off it all day long because it's super safe. To make a harder E-grade, you need some kind of a combination between danger and difficulty. So basically, if the difficulty of the route goes high enough, the route doesn't need to be dangerous at all to get that that high E-grade. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, if you put the danger high enough, you can end up with a very, very low difficulty. Um, so just to use a really... like simple i'm saying simple here it's simple for me but maybe it's not going to be for for (laughs) listeners but take the grade of e7 for example if you take the grade of e7 which is like i would consider to be the beginning of is what people call hard grit is after after e7 it's when things start getting really generally really serious um but you could technically have an e7 that is completely safe as long as the difficulty would be somewhere around 8a so what's that 13 13b yeah Basically, it could be it could be bolted. It could be like the perfect splitter crack. If it's 13B, it, it's going to be about, around about E7. 
Um, as soon as the gear starts to get a little bit more complicated, a little bit run out, like it's going to maybe that 13B might become E8. And then as you start to get towards like actual dangerous territory where falling off is ill-advised because you know you're probably going to hurt yourself um you may be getting towards e9 and then that that 8a uh that 13b when it it becomes like an absolute guaranteed life changing or, or death situation then you're looking at like a solid solid e10 wow and it goes in the other way uh, as well so anyway i don't want to get bogged down on, on grades because oh, it's, it's, it's a funny thing but um basically found myself going to Pembroke, which is a place I'd always avoided in the past because it was full of these amazing, super safe, uh, but very, very hard trad routes. And so I knew that I would go there and best case scenario, I'd get pumped and fall off and, and, and just fall onto a good piece of gear and be fine. Worst case scenario is I'd get pumped before I made it to the good piece of gear and I'd fall off and hit the floor. But either way, I was going to get pumped and I was never going to get the end of a route. Yeah. Carrying a little bit of sport fitness meant that routes like that were now possible for me. And and so going to Pembroke and climbing, I think on the first trip to Pembroke, I had not been trad climbing for about three years. I really worried that, you know, maybe I'd lost all of those feelings that I'd had had before, all of the kind of knowledge I'd built about trad and I was just going to be a an absolute mess. And on that trip, I tried to flash a route that was given E10. And at that point, E8 was the hardest thing that had ever been flashed in the UK. So it was like a really big, big deal. I don't even know why I, I thought about doing it, but basically I'd realized that you can you can split the E grades into danger and difficulty, like I just said. And if I and if I stopped feeling this kind of emotional connection that I'd had growing up as a trad climber in the UK, where E10 seemed like a just an insurmountable number to me you know just a huge huge deal when you actually broke it down into what it was as a sport route which is basically like uh like uh 13 13b or 13c or something all i need and with a very very dangerous fall all i needed to do was be able to flash 13b or c with a gun against my head and and that and that was that <laughs> that's kind of how i thought about yeah it. yeah and all I did is I trained for I think six months. I went, I only went sport climbing every single day. Didn't either outside or in the gym, and I only flashed routes. I didn't red point them. I didn't on site them. I just flashed routes because that's what I wanted to do. And when I basically stopped falling off routes of that grade, I thought that I was kind of ready. Maybe that seems a little bit reductory, <laughs> but it, it made sense to me at the time. And so I went to Pembroke and I and I tried this route. Um, I didn't actually flash it. I I fell off the the top luckily where where it was safe to fall off i ended up doing it ground up the second day which again hadn't ever been done before and so it it, it first of all it opened my eyes to what the future of trad climbing might look like when you combine kind of this this boldness that i already had from all these years climbing on the grid with a solid sport climbing background but more than that it it just god i just felt like falling in love with climbing again because instead of being at the bottom of these routes, feeling this dread in the pit of my stomach because I knew I was going to just have an absolute epic and probably fall off and potentially really hurt myself, I could just look at, up at these amazing routes, things that I'd never even considered possible for me before, and just feel excited to get on them. 
And it was a question of like, it wasn't, am I going to get up this thing? It was just like, how deep am I going to have to dig to get up this thing? And that was just absolutely amazing for me. And that sort of defined the next couple of years in my life, which all led up to Rhapsody. Um, and eventually going back to to climb Rhapsody, um, which was probably the biggest question mark I've ever had. Because I felt like I'd moved forward so much as a climber since those days of the walk of life and, and going and failing on Rhapsody and dismissing it and just being this little arrogant idiot. But I really wasn't sure. You know, maybe all this was just a nice story I was telling myself in my head and I would go and, and, and try Rhapsody and, and fail again and it would have kind of all been for nothing. Mm. And um, and so, yeah, so I, I went to climb Rhapsody. Um, it was a pretty, pretty intense moment. But then when I finally did it, when I finally stood on top of that wall, and now, again, with hindsight, I can look at that wall and I can say, yes, you know, the line isn't perfect. Yes, it is slightly eliminant in that you could probably climb out and avoid and get away from the the danger and the difficulty of it. But if you do follow those few little rules that Dave decided, it is a flipping amazing route. The climbing is just incredible. And the position up there, like run out 30 feet above your last protection in like 14, 14C, 14, yeah, 14B, 14C climbing is it's pretty wild. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and so climbing it one, I remember, remember it really well, one really windy October morning um, just felt like closing a, a really, really important chapter mm. in my climbing life. And that felt like I could finally move on, which gets us finally back to your first question. <laughs> Amazing. Um, you're very good at this. That thank you for taking us on that journey. That was perfect. Um, I don't know if I'm very good at it. No, I've... I called my my presentation that I recently made about about Bon Voyage and about yeah. the grade of U12. I called the the presentation there and back again, <laughs> partly because of you know the, the circle, but also because of the reference that I have to the Lord of the Rings and, uh -huh. and the Hobbit's tale about just just going like way too deep into <laughs> into everything. <laughs> so yeah, I've, this I've... is going to be a long podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One hour per question. Let's see. Let's see where we go from here. I have a few questions before we go any further, just to kind of clean, clean some of that up and, and add some yep. context around some of that. So first off, thanks for the breakdown on the E-grades. Super helpful for people listening, I'm sure. And for me too. How hard of a route do you think you had climbed before leaving the UK the first time? You know, like most of your, most of the hardest things you'd done, the E-10s and stuff you had done, um, yeah. and then the walk of life also had a huge danger element to them. So yeah, as yeah. far as the physical difficulty, what was your standard when you first went to Innsbruck? What was that looking like? Yes. So I, I, I touched on it briefly earlier. I'd done one eight B plus. So one forty. Oh, right. Okay. At, um, at Raven Tor. And it was short and bouldery. Which is very, very short. Exactly. Okay. Um, so that was my sport climbing pedigree. Uh, you know, I think I'd done one thirteen, uh, D before that. And then like a handful of of thirteen Cs and and you know maybe a few more thirteen okay. Bs, but really not not much because like I said, every time I went sport climbing, I generally felt pretty bad, and I I I, You've I used it. not to like doing things that I I wasn't very good at. Yeah, yeah. Um, bouldering on the other hand was different. Bouldering I've always been naturally better at, and so 
around the time that I climbed the Walk of Life, so 2008, I was also really focused on bouldering and I was really into flashing boulder problems. That was kind of what I was actually best at. Um, and at the time, so just before I climbed the Walk of Life, I just flashed my third V13. Um, wow. Yeah. Holy shit. Which I, I think I think all three of them have since been downgraded to V12. Okay. Uh, so I so I no longer have a V13 flash. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was I was one of the first, and definitely the first to do more than more than one. Wow. Um, so yeah, you can see the difference then between my bouldering and my sport climbing. Yeah. Like if you imagine being being capable of bizarrely though, I'd I'd never climbed V14. <laughs> yeah. I had a um, I had a real, like I said, I had this real trouble with actually sticking things, sticking uh, with things to the end and bouldering, you know, it's, it's not the same as climbing an off wit, but the process so often of climbing hard boulders is kind of a bit painful, tedious, a little bit physically, but, but, but mentally like going, you know, going back day in, day out, working on these things. And I'd, I'd had one long-term project uh, once in my life, and that was the buttermilker in, in, in Bishop when I was 18, I think. I'd, I'd spent like 10 days on it or something. And since then, I hadn't ever spent more than, I think, two days on a on a boulder. I just didn't. I didn't like it, and I didn't feel like I made any drastic improvement. And I, so for some reason, I was really, really good at trying super hard on that one first go. Um, it kind of just came about as a bit of a surprise. I was actually in uh, in Colorado when it when it happened for the first time. I, I almost flashed. Um, God, what's that? It was a classic eight eight B plus up in um, in the park. One of like nothing but sunshine. Mm. Yeah, I nearly flashed nothing but sunshine, and I flashed something called Secret Splendor that Thailandman had put up. Okay, and I nearly flashed another eight B down in Clear Creek um something roof thing i forget the name of it anyway so after that trip i was like oh cool i should try more of this and then i went to switzerland on a few trips and i i flashed a few a few eight bees in switzerland uh but yeah so i was in like a pretty good boulder shape terrible root shape and then i went to innsbruck and got really bad at bouldering (laughs) and then eventually okay at root climbing and for (laughs) quite a while after that i was really bad at bouldering when i say really bad at bouldering i was like kind of like like v11 v12 off the couch but i couldn't kind of get past that Hmm. and again it was it goes back to this we do the things that um that we we feel like we're the best at because that's where we get this the all these pleasure signals from and at the time when i was when i was really flashing bowlers um i felt like i wouldn't say that i was one of the best bowlers in the world but i could definitely play in the same ballpark as some of the other best boulders in the world. Like I For remember sure. being on a trip in Switzerland at the same time as Nally, and we were working on uh, this boulder called Vecchioleone, and I, I climbed it before him. And um, and then a couple of years later, Nally's putting up the world's first nine A, and I'm struggling to get up up eight A's. <laughs> and uh, dis, you know, despite trying a few times, it just never felt that much fun. It always felt like I was heavy. And just I don't know, uncoordinated somehow. And I just yeah, I, I never put the time in. And I think between two thousand and what would it be between like two thousand and eight, two and two thousand and nineteen, I don't think I climbed more than you know a couple of days above a crash pad. Mm. Just 
completely went cold turkey from from bouldering. Mm. That's fascinating. And it, it does fill in a very helpful piece of context. I mean, that definitely helps explain your jump from AB plus or really from, you know, falling off seven B plus in Turkey to climbing nine, yeah. a, a year and a half later. Like that makes sense. If you're at a standard where you can yeah, flash yeah, B12 or the B13. Power yeah, yeah, yeah. And the technique was there. It's right. just that my incredible lack of endurance or more like an incredible lack of understanding of actually how to climb without squeezing every every giant jug like it's a tiny crimp mm. um just meant that i i just could i yeah i just couldn't do it i used to joke with people that i didn't have um i didn't have like a, a difficulty limit i had like a height limit so you know regardless if it was like a, like an 11a or like a 14a for me it was always the same i'd get to about six meters floor, <laughs> and then my elbows would come up and i'd just fall off and for me at the time it was literally like the the signal comes into my brain that I'm pumped and I have like a three second countdown. He'd be like, oh no, I'm pumped. And then boom, boom, and I'm off. Which is just, I mean, it's so funny now, kind of knowing a little bit more about sport climbing, but mm-hmm. that's that's where I was. Yeah. <laughs> that all makes sense. That Carol all makes used sense. to find it so funny. Yeah. I was gonna say, I mean, it, it probably didn't piss her off because you had such a you know, a high bouldering base. She probably knew that you were capable of these things. But I was gonna ask earlier, like did it piss her off that you? I mean, how hard has she climbed? She's climbed like eight C plus or something. She's an incredible yeah, climber. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. She's an amazing climber. Uh, but she hasn't climbed nine so, A, or has she? No, no. Did it piss her off when you climbed nine A? She's like, God damn it, this motherfucker comes along, and a year and a half later, I I like share all my knowledge with him, and then a year and a half later, he climbs harder than me on this style that he was totally terrible at a year and a half ago yeah you know i don't i don't think so because i think for caroline sport climbing was always um you know it always came second to competition climbing for her as that's what she was really focused at and although she did sport climb a lot more than i'd say most of the competitors back then and definitely than most of the competitors nowadays i think it's a completely different different game um but she was always doing it as as sort of a training exercise and she's also really really humble she's she's not she's not like me like i'm as soon as i (laughs) as soon as i kind of get to one new level like i remember when i started climbing or i'd probably been climbing for a couple of months at this point i'd start to understand you know what climbing was and what grades were i remember saying to myself like if i ever climb v11 like i can retire i'll be so happy that'll be me done forever but then as soon as you get to V11, all you want to do is climb V12 and then V13. And it, and it's the same to this day. Like now I'm I'm bouldering. I'm in my best bouldering shape ever. I, I climbed my first 8C, when was it now? Two years ago? Incredible. Something? Yeah. V15. And um and I and I and I thought that might be it. I thought maybe I'd finally be happy. And all I want to do now is go go try V16. And and now <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm V16 is almost you know, that's almost V17 and God, like that's, that's as hard as, as it comes. So why not? So now I'm going to Switzerland tomorrow, actually, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to go try. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. So uh, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. So Carol, no, I don't think she was ever pissed. I think she was proud of herself. I think she was happy that she could, um, she could make, you know, one of my, my biggest climbing dreams come true. Um, and, and mainly because of her, we got we got to live an amazing climbing life together because mm. I think if she hadn't helped me, and we had started a relationship, 
for her, it would have been a very different time. You know, if I'd suddenly had to go and get like a regular job <laughs> because suddenly all my sponsors <laughs> dropped me and she was trying to still be a pro climber, it wouldn't have been as, as fun. So yeah, thanks. Thanks to her, the two of us, you know, we, we, yeah, we lived this amazing, amazing life, 10 years traveling all around the world, just going wherever we wanted, doing, doing all these incredible things and spending way too much carbon i think but mm. that's another story <laughs> yeah that's so funny she's like we gotta get your you gotta get your shit together so we can actually do this pro climber thing <laughs> yeah, you gotta keep much. up buddy yeah i think it was it, we, we really we really shared so many things and so i she she finished her competition career and um and i was telling her like you know you you we could maybe try mm like both being pro climbers that could be cool together and she was like well what what does a pro climber do because in france i guess it's it's a bit different in the in the us i imagine and it was different in in the uk as well but in france basically you, if you were if you were one of the best if you were one of the stars in that competition world you didn't want for anything the government and the federation covered everything so caroline had been traveling all, all around the world you know for for these amazing competitions for the last 10 years and she'd never spent a cent of her own money. Wow! Because it all it was all paid for and all covered. And she had trainers and 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 dietitians and um, mental coaches. You know everything that you could want. They're super serious in in France. So she had no idea actually. A kind of how much it cost to go on regular trips and be a regular person who has to kind of pay your pay your own way, and B how you can actually make money out of climbing, because she was at the point. Earlier in her comp career, she told me actually that she'd um, she'd basically told magazine editors and photographers that wanted to do photo shoots with her, like to to kind of to get lost because she didn't have the time to dedicate to that because she needed to go training. That's kind of how how focused she was, and um, and so she dedicated a year of her life living off her own savings to becoming a pro climber. So my part of the deal was kind of to explain to her and show her how that side works and her part of the deal was to get me fit and then uh the plan the plan worked pretty well because like i said we we had a pretty cool or we have still to this day mm. a pretty cool life even cooler life now i dare say awesome For very different reasons and we will be right back this episode is brought to you by Madrock. I'd heard a lot about the drones on this podcast from guests like Matt Foltz, Emil Abrahamson, and Ethan Pringle, who all swear by these shoes. And I finally got to try the drones in 2023. And the hype is real. I immediately fell in love with the Drone CS, especially. That's their comp version, which is a little softer. And I sent all of my hardest outdoor boulders in 2023 while wearing the Drone CS. I wore them almost exclusively in Magic Wood and Rocklands over the summer. I got to test them on a wide variety of climbs, and I'm a huge fan. I just got my second pair of the Drone CS, and now I'm testing the Drone 2.0. The Drone 2.0 is a huge upgrade from the original, in my opinion. They feature all of the things I love about the Drone CS, but they're just a little stiffer and more supportive. You can really drive into small footholds and edges with the Drone 2.0. And I'm really excited to test both of these shoes here in Waco Tanks over the next two months. And I will let you all know how that goes. I'm super stoked. I would recommend the Drone CS if you like a softer, more sensitive shoe. 
And I'd recommend the Drone 2.0 if you want a slightly stiffer shoe that can really claw into small footholds on hard climbs. Both of these shoes are amazing for toe hooking. They both feature the Edge heel, which is clutch for heel hooking on small crimps and edges. I'm a huge fan of both. Head over to madrock.com and enter code NUGGET for 10% off your first order. That's madrock.com and code NUGGET for 10% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. Rhino provides the best skincare products on the market for climbers made from plant-based, great quality ingredients with no fillers and no BS. I still use the repair cream all the time and it really does wonders for helping my skin heal faster after a hard outdoor bouldering session. If I come home from a day of climbing and my skin is torn up, I wash my hands. I love Rhino's wash product for that, that's new. And then I immediately apply the repair cream and I apply it several times throughout the evening. If I have really damaged skin, like a flapper or a split or something like that, I've been psyched on a new product from Rhino called Split Plus. It's made for severely chapped or worn or cracked skin, and it's awesome. I was recently trying a project on Flagstaff Mountain near Boulder, Colorado, which is the sharpest place I've ever climbed, and I was using Split Plus a lot, and it really, really helped. If you wanna level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and check out their great line of products and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. Again, that's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off the best skincare products in the game. And now back to the show. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll circle back to all that for sure. I I can't wait to talk to you about kids. That's something that I'm very curious to talk to you about. But okay, I want to ask you one more question about um about where we just left off with repeating rhapsody, and then we can finally go back to my very first question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and get this podcast started. We can finally start the podcast. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Why did it feel important? to go back to the UK at all? And was Rhapsody always something that you had in your mind as this kind of unfinished business? Why, why did that feel important to you? And why not just yeah. say, fuck all those people? I mean, we, we definitely like alluded to what happened, but um, feel free to fill in more context here as well about what actually happened after Walk of Life and after Dave downgraded it. Like, you know, everyone on the internet's just angry at you. Are, are people threatening you? Like, what did that look like? And, and why ever come all the way back around to it you said that it felt like a closing of a chapter when you did rhapsody yeah. so obviously there's something there but yeah i just want to hear you expand on that a little bit more yeah so so the reasons to go the reason to go back to rhapsody specifically um a you know the there's not many really hard trad routes around that's the that's the base of it rhapsody was the hardest so it was still even if 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 there had been no past history between me and that and that route, um, it would have been a really obvious target to go for at, th- at that point. But more than all of, of that, I think it's the the way that I'd acted towards that route, towards Dave McLeod, um, and towards the UK climbing community to a certain extent. I felt I really felt like I needed to yeah, ap- apologize to a certain extent. I think at that at that point, I could see how I'd, I'd been kind of a dick. Um, not, you know, I, I wasn't specifically going out to be a dick. Like we, we've already covered, I think there were 
external factors that had made that kind of that had taken me down that path. But the end result is that I was a dick. Just in saying, like, I don't want to do this route because it's an eliminated or contrived. Yeah, just in 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 saying that Rhapsody was a was a shitty route. Um, but in also the way that I kind of I did consider myself, you know, God's gift to climbing. I, at some point, I really started to believe it. Like at some point, I genuinely, and this would be flipping embarrassing to talk about if I didn't find it so unbelievable now. But at some point, I can remember having these little, little conversations with myself, wondering if I wasn't somehow a little bit magic. Like, you know, if there wasn't like a higher power and I'm not religious at all, but if there wasn't, you know, something kind of guiding me, I felt like, you know, whatever I, I turned my hands to, like I, I could do no wrong because I'd just gone from what felt like strength to strength to strength, ticking off all these, these really hard existing routes and then a load of first ascents and then finding the walk of life. And I mean, life just felt awesome. And then suddenly it didn't because <laughs> it it wasn't. Yeah, it it was the the truth that I was telling myself rather than the actual the actual truth, if that even exists. Um, <laughs> and so, what the people in the UK uh, did to me—it's not really what they did to me. It's it's more what they made me feel. And so, yeah, there was a lot of stuff on the internet. Um, if it had been just that, I think it would have—I could have probably dealt with it. But unfortunately, and this is the stuff that still to this day like hit hits the hardest um unfortunately it turned out that there were quite a few people that i considered to be to be close friends that weren't super kind to me and it, it, nothing was ever said to my face really um the odd snide comment but you know i could deal with that but i heard a lot of stuff going on behind my back and it just, it, yeah, that really made me sad. And I think it was a time when I really, it was probably the time in my life when I needed close friends mm. to be, you know, to be there and to make me somehow feel okay about everything that was going off and to realize that I'd kind of, some of the people that I considered to be the, the closest to me in the world weren't actually that that kind. That was, that was really, really hard. And then there was an, there was some other shit that went on that I'm, I'm not going to get into right right now, but I basically found myself in like a pretty professionally and personally in a pretty lonely place. And um, so that was why I left. And then why I went back, it would have been really tempting just to, you know, just to stick the middle finger up and kind of get on with other stuff. And I was having so much fun out in Europe, but trad climbing is what I really, for one reason or another, it's what I really love to do. Um, and I'm, I'm realizing that more and more in this last couple of years, it just, it feels like I've got this deeper connection to that than to any other type of climbing. And so I wanted to go back to the UK partly because of that, um, because the UK has some of the best track climbing around for sure. But I kind of, I guess for a long time, I thought of the UK as like my hypothetical ex. And maybe it was because at that time there was a genuine ex that had also made it very, very compl complicated. And I kind of felt like the UK climbing community, you know, was this this lover that had suddenly just left me and made me feel so shitty. And all you want to do is win them back. But whatever you do to try and win them back, they end up just running 
even further away, away from you. Mm. And so a lot of the those early routes in the UK, so going back and doing Rhapsody, going to again to Pembroke and and, and flashing even more routes, doing like the first flash of an E9. Um, all of this was kind of living in hope that this, you know, hypothetical climbing community, whatever that means, whatever that represents in the UK, would suddenly one day turn around and be like, oh, I'm really sorry for the way that we treated you before. Let me give you a hug. It's it's okay. Mm. We love you. <laughs> and it never happened. It mm. fucking never happened. But uh, what eventually did happen is that I realized that that doesn't mean anything. I don't need, I don't need that. I'm not, I'm not doing these things for, for those people. I need, and if I were doing these things for those people, I don't think it would be a very um, safe and sane way to go about climbing dangerous routes. When I climb dangerous routes and, and hard tread routes, I need to be doing it for for me yeah. and and for my pure uh, motivations. And so, yeah, life's finally getting past that was was it was a pretty yeah was a pretty big big step. Yeah, and that kind of then led me past Rhapsody, uh, and then just onto this. Yeah, I, I guess I'd call it my search phase, where I kind of went back to an idea that I'd always had, or or at least you know since since the early days on the grit, where I was I was searching for something that was going to push me further than I, I'd ever been pushed before. Um, this is what I thought the walk of life was going to be. Back then, I thought I was looking for the hardest trad route in the world. But at that, by that point, by 2014, 2015, I realized that I could never find that. That I can never find the hardest. All I can do, and all I can hope to do, is to find my hardest. And uh, and yeah. So then, 2014 to 2018, basically up until we became parents, our climbing life was focused on that. I say our because Carol was was with me every step of the way. Um, and it doesn't, that shouldn't sound like, you know, she was just being the good wife following me around and making sure that everything, everything was, was perfect for me. She was also getting really, really into her trad climbing and going from sort of strength to strength in that. And I think just enjoying discovering a complete new world, something that she, she'd barely known existed before. And, uh, and yeah, so we were just super, super excited and just super grateful for for this amazing life that climbing had given us yeah quick question about something that you just touched on you said you know you you came back to the uk hoping that proving yourself again would win the admiration or affection or you know whatever of, of this ex-lover <laughs> i love the picture that you painted around that why did you make the film redemption and did that change anything how was that received uh so um a lot of the uh, a lot of the hardest decisions that I've made uh, in my life ultimately come from Caro because I think she knows me better than I know myself and she knows when I need to do something like that. And so uh, after after climbing my first nine A and you know building a decent level sport climbing, I had absolutely no desire to go back and do Rhapsody. Honest, honestly, personally. I mean, I, I I think I wanted to deep down. I think I liked the idea, but it was so scary for me because 
without actually going back to try it, that question could always remain unanswered. And I could just pretend that everything was perfect. And, you know, that, that, I, that I'd found a way to, to move on and be happy again without actually having to really test it and see. And uh, at some point, Caro, like slowly at first, she started bringing the idea uh, to the table and then eventually fairly forcefully once i once i guess once i'd started to show interest in it that it might be a, a fun thing to do she then went straight to hot takes productions which was the film crew that i'd worked with on all of my previous films and the film about the walk of life for example and basically like you guys know james really really well you guys have got all this old footage of him this is a story that he needs to tell to the world will you make a film about him going and doing Rhapsody? And those, th- that little crew basically set it all up without, without me. <laughs> and at some point I'm like, um, yeah, like a white flag. I'm, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm into this, but like, like everything that, that she does, like she's, yeah, she's, she's in French. She'd say, elle a raison. She she always knows best, and uh, and yeah, she definitely knew best then, and it was something that really helped me. It wasn't plain sailing when I actually first went over there and first got on Rhapsody. I I remembered how it had felt before when I had that really high level uh, as a boulderer, and all the moves had felt super easy, and then to come back to it with a higher sport climbing level but less bouldering uh, ability, suddenly the actual the moves felt hard. And I was like, "Uh oh, this is this is bad." Because in the past, if the moves had felt even the tiniest bit hard in a route, there was no way I would do it. And so all mm. these kind of these visions of my old self came flooding back, and I was just like, "What? What? What the fuck? What? This is this is not going to work." And I definitely had a couple of days where it was like full on panic mode. There's a film crew there, you know, filming the progress, and I'm just basically just 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 punting on on this thing. And but then it all came together like really really quickly, actually, and um. Yeah, and then that, and then and then that was it. On to the next stage in our lives. Yeah, you said that that felt like a closing of a chapter. So let's let's come back to Bon Voyage now. Um, and in between that time, you've done a ton of other hard things, and we can talk about Tribe. You ended up repeating that, I think, in two thousand twenty, right? Like October two thousand twenty. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And you've done some other nine A's recently, sport climbs, fourteen um, D's. You've bouldered B fifteen eight C. So like obviously all the pieces are there. Like you have such a such um, a wider base and so much more perspective and breadth of experience across all these different styles now. So you do this really hard thing. If you said like this is nine A plus, this is one of the hardest trad routes in the world, or it's E twelve or whatever. I think that everyone would just be like, fuck yeah, like it makes sense. You know, if it took him longer than tribe or whatever else. Um, but it sounds like a lot of stuff came up for you again. So what was that experience like when you did the route and you thought about grading it and putting that lofty grade out there? Um, what was still yeah. lurking? Like what was still behind the, or, or underneath the surface that you had to kind of sort through? What came back up for you? So you, you know, you might be totally right. Maybe everybody would have just been super supportive. Um, I'm, we haven't really gone like in depth into my sort of approach to climbing, my approach to like life in general and figuring stuff out. I'm basically a really kind of quite a geeky person. Um, 
quite obsessive about understanding things sort of quite methodical. Uh, and so when I look at all these pieces and kind of add them all together, I can I can really see clearly that I'm in a completely different place to where I was when I climbed the walk of life. When I climbed the walk of life, I was 100% ruled by my emotions. And that's because I felt because I felt so terrified on that route and it felt so hard for me when I actually climbed it. I couldn't, I couldn't see past that, even though I knew objectively speaking that on a top rope, it never actually felt that bad. I could, I could climb it almost every time on, on a top rope. It was one of the objectively, it was one of the easiest pieces of, of physical climbing. I'd done way easier than some of the stuff I'd done on, 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 on the grit um, but it was just really pumpy. I got so flipping pumped uh, and and really terrifying. And I just couldn't separate those elements. So even though the kind of computer was was adding all the things together and saying this thing's not that hard, the emotional side of me was just like, no, no, no this thing is way this is way harder than anything you've done before. And so that <clears throat> I was way out just to begin with. And then my actual understanding of what E12 might even mean, I had no idea back then. Like I had, I, I used to, I thought about E-grades back then just as an E-grade, as this as this kind of collection of all these different elements that come together to make a trad route. Whereas nowadays I, and I don't know if you know, we did this project called E-grader a couple of months ago with oh. uh, with a few guys from the UK. It's based on Darth Grader, right? Like I just- It's kind of, well, it's kind of, it's it's we we we're working on version two with darth grader so the idea like the actual calculation at the minute isn't but the idea of an online grader uh of like an app that can help with grading came came from darth grader for sure but the basic idea of it was just to separate the emotional um baggage that you get with these e-grade e routes put it to one side and really look at them objectively as a combination of difficulty and danger and when i say danger i don't just mean how scared you might be i mean actually how likely you are to get injured on something um and so right now i think i genuinely have a pretty good grasp of what e12 represents i mean even what e13 would represent and what e14 would, would represent whereas back then e12 was just something mm. more than e11 but i had no <laughs> idea where that you know that fit in with things yeah and, and i I think in all honesty, what I should have done is I should have, I should have graded the walk of life E11 because that's, I think I felt like it was harder than everything that I'd done. I felt like it, it seemed harder than me to Rhapsody and I should have just been okay with the a grade boundary can be really wide. Mm. And, you know, maybe one thing can, can be the upper end and one thing can be the lower end and E11 is probably totally fine. And I actually think that if I'd done that, the, clash or the fallout might not have been so catastrophic mm. but by basically being so yeah just just so blind so arrogant to think well my thing's got to be harder so it has to be this imaginary new grade that no one's ever even really thought of before yeah i just threw it out there without having any idea what it what it means yeah and so to like the james from 15 years ago and the james today really different people with a really different understanding of the world of climbing, uh, the world of grades, and also a completely different skill set. So when I look at these things logically, like I believe I should be able to, 
I know that I shouldn't have any problem giving it the grade that I think it is because of all of these elements. But then there's just this, again, this emotional connection, not necessarily because of the fear um, that I had on in, in, in that route, like on the walk of life, but because of the fear of reliving the experience that I had after grading the walk of life. Totally. You know, basically, the, the the way that the the community in the UK made made me feel, and that the the self development that I had to go through after that to, to come to terms with all of that, it just terrified me. Makes to, perfect sense. Yeah. To 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 even think that I might, you know, imagine going back towards that, let alone even actually doing it. And um, what was really interesting for me, and maybe maybe it was one of the moments that. There were several moments that made me feel like I, I needed to come to terms with all this. But one of those moments was um, shortly after climbing Bon Voyage, uh, like a week after, I wanted to test my physical form to kind of see where I where I was. And so I went to a limestone sport crag here in the south of France and I decided to try and, and climb um, a sport route of a similar, similar grade to Bon Voyage similar style breakdown kind of you know same sort of difficulty entrance pitch then like a crooksy bit and then like a resistancey bit um and just to see where i kind of was with things so i chose a 9a uh, a crag uh called sane which is pretty close to where we where we live and uh i went to try this thing and realistically it's, it doesn't suit me quite as well as bon voyage because it's a little bit more resistance uh bon voyage is still a little bit more bouldery the holds on this this 9A sport route are generally a bit bigger, but it's just a bit more pumpy. And Bon Voyage, it's smaller holds, uh, harder moves. And uh, and I climbed this route in, I think, four days, something like that. So I knew I was in a really, like, really, really good shape. Um, and it was another just another thing that started, kind of another little tick in a box that made me think my gut instinct is probably, probably on the money with this one. Mm-hmm. But then still, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I was at the crag actually with Hazel Finley. Um, she was staying with us, and, and we were climbing together a little bit at the time. And I was talking to her about why, you know, why I'm so scared about this. And um, she was saying exactly the same as you. You know, you don't, you don't need to prove anything to anybody anymore. Like you've, everyone knows that you've, you know, you've done all these hard routes now, and, and that's good. And no one cares anymore about the past. Like just let, let it go. It's, it's fine. It's okay. And I was like. I know, but I can't. And I started mm. telling her this conversation, like face to face with with Hazel. I started telling her about all these these things I imagined would happen if I were to give it the grade of E twelve and it were to get downgraded again. And um, like I imagine these these inter- these like Instagram memes of you know lightning really does strike twice or some, <laughs> something stupid like that, and. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of I was blabbing on to Hazel and at some point I noticed the way she was looking at me a little bit strange and I was like oh did I say something like weird or like I don't know offensive or something like that. and then I realized it wasn't it was just compassion in her eyes mm-hmm. the way she was looking at me and she was like James I think I think what you what you're showing now is like classic signs of somebody with PTSD mm-hmm. and and when she said that Honestly, I, I I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. And uh, I think I still don't. Because clearly, like, it has flipping, it's messed me, it's really messed me up. But I'm doing my best to to find a way through. And so 
the second thing, and maybe even more important than that, is I'm a dad now. I'm, you know, I've been it's, it's five years. Uh, Arthur will be five year five years old at the end of December. So, like, I've yeah, it's been a pretty wild ride. And um, as a dad, you're you realize the the influence that you have over your children is just it's just you can't imagine how much you're going to influence this little this little being basically whatever we do to them right now whatever we tell them right now it's going to completely define who they're going to become later in their life and it's such a responsibility every day i i I think about that and i and i it's the thing that scares me the most is you know potentially making their life harder for them than it needs to be further down the line and so all the time you know i'm telling arthur what I feel like he needs to be, to be a good person, to be kind, to be thoughtful. Um, and I'm also telling him things like, you know, you need to be brave and you need to, you need to stand up for what you think is right in life and, you know, trust, trust your instincts and, you know, like have, have courage. And I'm, I'm telling all this, all these things to him. And I'm thinking that okay, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm not, sh- I'm not showing him that. And and I'm lucky that he's still too young to understand. So, you know, he still looks at me with these like big eyes full of wonder, like I'm Superman. And I haven't yet had to let him down. But I I honestly couldn't imagine being able to justify this decision to hide from all of these these things that make me scared. Um, if ever in the future he asked me why I'd done that. Mm. Like I don't know how I, I don't think I'd be able to. And so that's simple fact alone it really told me that i need to <laughs> i need to kind of pull my finger out and try and sort my shit out and get this get this thing sorted once and for all and so that's kind of what brought me back to well where we are right now talking about it talking about it publicly um with you with with some other people about i, I recently made a, a public presentation at kendall film festival which is one of the biggest film festivals in the world um about about bon voyage about this whole journey and it was a pretty, yeah, it was a pretty powerful, uh, intense moment for me because it was not only back in the UK, in front of potentially a lot of the people that I'd, you know, maybe even had criticism from it in the past, but it was on the very same stage that I presented the film of The Walk of Life 15 years ago. And and that, to me, felt like, you know, sometimes in life, there's these, these funny little things come along and you don't really understand why but that felt like a pretty pretty powerful pretty meaningful moment to to be there again 15 years later after having started all of this and maybe putting it finally to bed and finding that courage for the first time in public to say that yeah i think i think bon voyage deserves e12 and that's basically how i i finished my presentation and so that's that's where I am right now. I'm um, about ready to publicize a little text I've, um, on the whole experience and, and to officially say say what I think about about the route and to put a grade on it. And who knows? Maybe maybe someone will come along and and disagree. And you know what? I think the most important thing in all of this is that. I've realized that 
that's okay. And I think I always realized that that was okay. I think I always understood that grades were were someone's opinion. And, you know, we're humans when we're not robots. There's always going to be a difference in opinions. And I genuinely believe, for me at least, I have a full grade of of um, a variation in my interpretation of a, of a route, you know, depending on whether a route suits me um, or, you know, whether I've got good conditions, like an 8C could feel like 8B plus or 8C plus, depending on how the route is and when I climb it. Mm-hmm. And I honestly... This is also one of the reasons why I, I, for a long time I haven't really graded things is because I genuinely don't know. Like I, I'm getting to the point, and I, maybe I'm even going to propose this, but like we should make the grading scale more vague. I think it would be huh. better because grades are great for putting people in like a, a rough, a rough ballpark area, so you know that the route you're going to try might, you know, isn't going to be way out of your comfort zone. But um, apart from that. I feel like we we often really stress so much about, you know, is this a really, really hard 7C plus or is it like a really soft 8A? And it just, at least from my point of view, I can't I can't tell you either way. It, it, you know, Monday it might feel like a really hard 7C plus and on, on, on Wednesday it might feel like a really easy 8A and that's just, that's just climbing. Mm-hmm. And so where I think I'm at right now is that even though I know People might have a different opinion uh, than I than I do, and even though this might mean that potentially one day the route gets downgraded, it doesn't really matter anymore because I'm not. I don't need to hold on to that one singular number to to show myself that that I'm somehow deserving to be here. You know, deserving of the place that I have. Yeah. Like I don't need to prove that anymore. And um, and if people want to know my opinion, then then that then then here it is. Yeah, that's what that's what I think. I love that. Yeah, I love where you've where where you've arrived at now. I'm sure you're still on the journey, right? But um, but I love the that. It'll never be over. Yeah, the journey. Yeah, the journey is never over for sure. Um, but I love where you've gotten to, and uh, and I hope we can all. <laughs> I don't know. I understand why why people get so fired up about grades, I think, um, because certainly it does happen that's that, you know, high grades get thrown out there simply to elevate a person's status or whatever. Like, of course, of course that happens too. Um, but what is really unfortunate is that it's just hard for people to give their honest opinions. Like grades are supposed to be a consensus and, um, the backlash has been so severe, not just with you, but I remember, you know, there was the film about Daniel Woods and Paul Robinson each climbing V16. And then what happened after that was a total shit show. And it took like a decade for anyone to be brave enough to propose a V16 again and for that grade to kind of be solidified. Like that was a mess. And uh, yeah. I just hope we can get to a point where like people can share their honest opinions and have that met with like nothing. Like, cool. That's another piece of data. We can add that to the pile. We can start to form a, a consensus. Yeah. I, I remember I was talking to Aunt, uh, Anna Hazelnut and, um, you know, she's done Once Upon a Time and and now she's done Walk of Life, those two trad routes on that sea cliff that are yeah. right next to each other. And Once Upon a Time is E9. And she did that one first and then she did Walk of Life and it's supposed to be E9 too. And um, I was talking to her offline and, and um, you know, basically she's like, 
I mean, she's like, I mean, it, it might be V, it might be E10. Like, I don't know. I don't want to claim Walk of Life as E10. I think that would maybe make her the first woman to climb E10. I can't remember, but she's like, I'm definitely not claiming that because I just don't want the mess of it. But she's like, I did both routes. Like one of them felt like 13B or 13C, and then one of them felt like 13D, and it felt way more dangerous than the than the less difficult one. So like it's probably a different E grade. And I'm just like, damn it. Like, it would be so helpful if she shared that and if people received it well, because then it would mean that you were less wrong than you thought you were, which I don't know if that would make a difference, but like, it wouldn't hurt anything, you know? And it's just, we can't even talk about these things. Like, people are scared to, um, to give their honest she's definitely opinions. Not the first, she's definitely not the first person to have, have the, the, that exact feeling. She's one of the few people that have climbed those two routes. And I don't know exactly how many ascents each route's got now, but once upon a time in the Southwest has significantly more than the walk of life and the few people that have climbed the walk of life and, um, once upon a time all said the same thing. And, um, and every time it happened in the past, I remember just thinking exactly what you just said, like, please somebody <laughs> come out, like say something because it might make me feel a little bit better, <laughs> mm. but you know, it, it, it never happened. Maybe one day it will. But what's important right now for me is that it doesn't need to happen anymore. That's great. Because uh, yeah. I think I think I, like I said before, I think if I graded the Walk of Life E11, I really genuinely believe there wouldn't have been such a such a huge mess behind it. Yeah, that makes that makes sense to me because it would, like you know, E12 at the time suggests this is the hardest route in the world. You know, I'm, you're, you're exactly. really making a statement with that versus E11 Completely. would have been more like, well, this is harder than anything else I've done. And mm -hmm. probably in a similar category as Rhapsody and some of these other, well, not some of these other things. Those were the only ones at the time. But um, yeah, I, I could see that. It's un unfortunate. <laughs> anyway, it anyway, is what it is. It I is made my bed and now I've got to lie in it. <laughs> so, okay, I, I have to, uh, I have to hear you know, E grader, what is an E12? You know, as you've kind of built this framework and explored each E grade and you understand what they all mean a little bit more yeah. um, scientifically and objectively, what is an E12 and where does Bon Voyage fit into that spectrum? So so basically the, um, the original idea of E grader um, came partly from a guy called John Dunn, who was a really famous UK trad climber, climbing some of the hardest trad routes in the country um like in the late 80s and early 90s but john was pretty unique in the fact that he was actually also an amazing sport climber and so most of the trad climbers at that time were kind of they were only trad climbing whereas john was basically sport climbing and occasionally coming back to trad climbing and so he was i think he was in a pretty unique position to see this relationship between danger and difficulty um as as two separate items that you know obviously have have some sort of a relationship together but are not necessarily or easily confuse um let's say let's put it like that whereas a lot of the other trad climbers that have only ever grown up doing trad routes and only have experience in that sort of field just just couldn't look at it like that and so john had pitched this idea to me originally Actually, ironically it was um around the time of the walk of life and i thought it was interesting back then but i didn't really get it because at the time i was like one of those trad climbers before 
me, you know, that had only ever really been trad climbing and had very, very little sport climbing experience. Sport grades didn't make sense to me, basically. Mm. Um, and so back back in the day when sport climbing was just becoming a thing in 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 well in the UK, but also in the rest of the world. Some of the first sport climbs in the UK were graded with E grades. And so E grades don't have to, it doesn't have to be on gear. Like it, it can apply to a it can apply to a sport route because technically the E grade is is just about like the overall effort that it takes you to climb a route. So whether it's protected by bolts or protected by terrible small wires, the overall effort is what we're trying to quantify here. And so you can see routes like Hubble, for example, which um, I mean, back in the day, they thought it was 8C+. So that was one of the first E9s in, in the UK. Um, and at the same time, there was this route called in the Indian Face, which is probably one of the boldest route tried routes in the UK, certainly one of the most famous bold tried routes. And that was also E9. And that has a sport grade of like 7B+, 7C, wow. maybe. So like worlds apart, but one of them is a sport route protected by bolts and one you're going to die if you if you fall off of it. And so we can see, looking at those old sport routes, you can see what the base level of any E-grade needs to be. And it's and it's pretty simple, um, basically. So if we, if we start again at E7, uh, E7 on bolts would be 8A, uh, E8 on bolts is 8B, E9 on bolts is 8C, E10 on bolts is 9A, E11 on bolts is going to be 9B. And, you know, you can work that all the way through to E12 on bolts is 9C. So technically, Andra, Adam's already climbed E12. So no one needs to make a fuss about the world's first E12 because it's it's already done. It's in some cave up in Flatlanger and it's got a load of bolts in it. So we can stop worrying about, about that. Hmm. Um, and so where Bon Voyage fits in is... It's sport difficulty is somewhere in the region. I think this might actually be the first time that I actually officially publicly say what sport grade I think it is. Um, so the, the the big the um, the disclaimer here is that, like I said before, I think there's half a grade either way of error in my judgment of things. So I I feel like for me, Bon Voyage is is a is a solid nine A. Um, I can see how if somebody comes along that is has really small fingers, is really, really strong on 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 pockets, and is quite a decent technical climber, it could possibly feel like a flipping desperate eight C plus. You know, maybe someone from the Frankenura or somewhere that's that's really climbed a lot on those really shallow hardcore pockets and is it used to an area where the grades are super stiff maybe but i think it'd be pretty harsh i can also see how somebody might think it's it's 9a plus if they if they really struggle on that style of, of move because the pockets are pretty small pretty intense uh, but for there's me, like a one pad pinky mono on it at some point <laughs> yeah yeah there's a there's a the way that i do it at least is a one pad pinky mono um so actually a few other people have been to try it now and there's a few other methods coming out um but I, so I basically do like a, a a pinky mono, and then I do this clock move, which which was the crux for me. So I I take this pinky mono, I take a terrible, almost non-existent like two finger crimp, two finger quarter pad crimp, um, and then I drop out of the pinky mono into a fairly decent like half 
half pad, uh, three finger, three finger edge. Um, and so when you're saying that half pad, three finger edge, like is a decent hold, you, you can know what the rest of the holds look like <laughs> on, on the route. Yeah. And what's really hard is that the pinky mono and this two finger crimp, there's such bad holds that it's really, really hard to, um, to like generate movement in one direction or another and to control that movement and the drop down into this pocket, you need to hit the pocket perfectly and you need to really minimize any momentum that you've got, um, in your body to have a chance of sticking it. And so it's quite, quite an on off move. You either do it or you don't. And I fell quite a few times on, on that move. Um, however, since then Seb birth came to try the route a bit. Um, so Seb's obviously a flipping amazing climber, super strong, like climbed a ton of nine, a pluses now, uh, really probably will be climbing nine B fairly soon. Um, and he's also amazingly strong on, on really small holds. Uh, and especially with his pinky, it turns out he actually found a way to go from this pinky all the way out to the, to the next fairly decent hold, which is a crazy long way. I thought that was going to be the original method. I couldn't do it because I felt like my pinky was going to explode. And, um, and, um, and then I, I found this, this other way with this tiny crimp, but Seb did it that way. And then since I've been back and I've tried it that way and I can actually, actually do it that way. Hmm. I think it took knowing that that move was possible and knowing that that move wasn't just going to explode your, your forearm <laughs> to make me actually commit. Yeah. And the move is, it's not easier. It's harder than than the individual moves that I that I do. It's in a physical sense, but it's a lot more controllable. Mm. So I've never tried the route from the bottom with that sequence. Perhaps it might feel easier because you've got this less sort of on-off nature of falling off that weird move in the middle. But you also might get there and just be a little bit more pumped than you are when you try the move fresh uh from hanging on a rope and i just maybe i can't even do it mm. maybe seb can't do it because he's not actually tried from the floor yet he's only tried individual moves yeah um in the meantime jacopo larker also came to try it he spent a couple of weeks there trying it and um he he can't he can't use the pinky at all he's just either not strong enough or not confident enough on his on his pinky so he found a method where he like stacks his first finger so he gets like a first finger so pointer finger mono, but this thing, because it's his pointer finger, it doesn't go as deep into the pocket as my pinky does because it's really small. So he's got like a third pad, like pointer finger mono, and he stacks his his in his, uh, his middle finger on top of it. It just looks disgusting. He's got so much, you can see his, his finger is going like purple when he's doing the move. He's got so much pressure on it. Ugh. And he does like, like Seb does, and he locks locks it and goes out and it's even harder lock because when i do my pinky mono i can kind of lean a little bit to the side off of it and so i get a little bit closer to the other hold whereas jacopo is like a gaston on this thing so he's having to lock super far and he's he was able to do the moves a couple of times like that but again he hasn't tried it from the floor um and the problem with his method is so skin intensive because he's got so much pressure on that one finger on a very very tiny uh surface area that he, he gets a couple of goes and it just blows, explodes mm. his finger. So uh, a few people have been to try it. Ignacio Malero, who's done a lot of really hard, hard trad as well and hard sport up to 9A+. He came and he, he couldn't actually manage the cr the crooks move really. Um, Steve McClaude just came and looked at the holes. He said it looked too hard for him to even try. Uh, a few wow. other guys that have like 
a few of the 9A climbers have come and had a quick look at it, but no, no one's actually been trying it from the floor yet. So everything I'm saying should be taken with a pinch of salt. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe when they do, they might find it easy, mm-hmm. or maybe when they do, they might find it hard. I, I don't know. I know for me, going from the floor was significantly different, but I'm also famously not very good with my endurance. Mm. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see. Adam was supposed to come and try it. Uh, that was what I was most excited about recently. Um, but then he, he had some issues uh, with his travel plans and he couldn't make it. So maybe in February he's coming. Cool. Uh, but I think if there's any one person in the world that knows, you know, what that grade might look like with in, in all different styles, regardless of whether it suits his strengths and weaknesses or, or, or not, it's going to be him. Because mm. the problem with everyone else that's been there, we all have our own strengths and weaknesses. Like, you know, I'm I'm a different climber to Jacopo, um, who's a different climber to Seb. Like their opinion is going to be their opinion. And whilst whilst I definitely take a lot from having all sorts of different opinions, um I think, yeah, we're we're not saying that any one opinion is more valid than another, apart from maybe Adams. Except for maybe Adams. <laughs> yeah. know, it's funny because when I was watching you climb Bone Voyage on the video, I, I immediately thought of Adam or anyone, Tommy, you know, whomever, but I thought of the traverse pitches on the Dawn wall. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was like, holy shit, this is like maybe the, you know, one of the hardest traverse climbs in the world. I mean, it's not a traverse, but, but the crux of it, part of it, it is, it, it kind, it kind of is. Yeah. And yeah, it reminds me of that right to left, you know, pitch 14, pitch 15 on the Dawn wall. And so Adam even has that yeah, to, very much to so. reference, which is interesting. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, I don't think I'd ever, I'd ever really thought about that i was always a little bit nervous at what people would think when when you know when i i showed some pictures or a video of it and they'd be like oh it's the traverse climbing should go up so i'm glad that you reminded me that there are dorm walls full of traverses because everyone <laughs> loves the dorm wall so. <laughs> yeah tell yeah. me about that like how long did it take for you to envision the line like did you did you see that line right away the first time you went to that cliff or did it take time for you to kind of have the imagination of of seeing no, like oh what if multiple, you um yeah what if you traversed across the enti- this entire wall like there's holds maybe that goes yeah yeah it was um it was mul- multiple years really to to even imagine that there was something up there um yeah so to just to go back a little bit so basically from 2014 to 2018 i was traveling all around the world looking for this perfect hard trad project and um i didn't really find anything actually i I found one thing in south africa that i think would be as hard if not even harder but it's like such an epic to get to it's at the top of a mountain after like a two-hour hike plus it's in south africa and since i don't really fly anymore it's kind of complicated to get there and so basically i'd you know I'd, i'd had free reign to go all over the globe looking for this thing and because of that insane possibility i became so picky and so um you know obsessed with finding this this imaginary line that i had in my head on rock somewhere that i think i i probably overlooked loads of amazing lines out there and since becoming a dad and you know having this little family unit here in in the south of france loads of things in our life changed and one of the things that changed that probably made the, the biggest difference to to us is that we don't we don't have the freedom to travel like we once did and that's partly personal choice because we we now don't want to fly because of the the impact um 
on on uh, on the world but also you know traveling with kids is kind of epic as well and so whilst we'll we'll go on van trips all the time around around france and around europe going further than that is you know just kind of off the cards and so i could just take all those far flung possibilities off the table and funnily when you when you don't have a choice anymore sometimes things just sort of line up and 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 work out and i always think that's pretty amazing how it happens like i couldn't travel all around the world in fact i couldn't really travel even all around europe when the kids were so were so small the only place i could go that had trad climbing within a few hours drive of my house was anot i'd been there before i'd pretty much written it off because the walls have a tendency to be they are some of the most blank walls that you can ever imagine like if anyone's ever been to you look at Yosemite granite, for example, like when it's so smooth mm. and you think, wow, that's a smooth wall. Like Anot is like you take the grain size of Yosemite granite and you just reduce it until it looks like someone has put a fine render on the outside of a house. You know, it's just like the smoothest walls you can ever imagine. There is There are no features in it apart from occasionally some weird edges and slopers and, and stuff. Very, very rare. And a lot of pockets. But the problem is, is that these pockets never seem to to go from the top to the bottom. There's loads of amazing lines of pockets, but they all just kind of like start and stop in the middle of nowhere. And that always used to really frustrate me. Le Voyage, which is the original line that I climbed in Anot, is um is quite different because it's actually for most the most part of it is a crack line. So there's basically a crack line, and where the crack line runs out, there's this amazing line of pocket of pockets, and uh, and then the crack line starts again, and you can go to the top of the wall. And I always thought that, that that route itself was was kind of a miracle of, of Mother Nature. But what I loved most about it was this perfect line of pockets where joining those two two cracks. And if the pockets weren't there, it just wouldn't work. And I was like, what what made those pockets? Like, why are they there? Why are they just in that one little place? And at some point I had this realization that I mean it's just sedimentary rock. It's basically like it's geology, you know, the those pockets are there because for one reason or another, and I'm probably going to totally botch this description, so apologies to any geologists out there listening, those pockets are some sort of an inclusion in that sedimentary layer of rock that over you know, the, the millions of years when it was laid down at the bottom of some ancient ocean just formed in a slightly different way. And so whilst most of the layers are totally smooth with really uniform uh, grain size, you get these random layers where there's these these inclusions that can sometimes be really really tiny, like the tip of a little finger. They can sometimes be absolutely enormous and look like a giant modern World Cup volume, but they pretty much always seem to go from like left to right or right to left, basically horizontally. Hmm. They never went vertically, and then suddenly it made sense when I thought about it in in geological terms. Um, apart from the the old sport routes are not which you know the the old french climbers like to say that sometimes god god's pretty amazing but sometimes god needs a little help <laughs> so they were never afraid to you know add a little pocket here mm. and there mm-hmm. if if there was one missing and because that's kind of a big no-no for me um especially you know from a from a trad climbing background and in in the uk we really frown upon shipping that was obviously was never an option. I just have to make deal 
make do with whatever God did leave for us. And um and so yeah, I'd I'd I realized that and um and I'd been abbing down different places in Anna and specifically different places on that wall because the sandstone on that one particular wall where Le Voyage is is actually really, really solid. It's a lot more solid than most of the sandstone in Anot, which means it's not only good for small holds, but it's also good for for gear. So I was looking at all these different uplines and none of them seemed to work. But every time I would jug up through through this one zone in the middle of the wall, I'd see these really cool pockets. And every time I was frustrated that they didn't link together until that moment where I looked a bit to my right and I looked a bit to my left <laughs> and I was like, hang on a minute. Maybe this is actually going to work. Hmm. And I remember the first time when I, specifically i like abbed in and checked out all parts of the route because it's kind of a pain in the ass to to actually being that it's a bit of a traverse it's a bit of a pain to work yeah but when i'd finally worked out that there were no the holes were really small but there were holes the whole way there was no like there was no gap bigger than a human's arm span and when i saw that i was like okay this is this is on maybe maybe i can't climb it but somebody someday will mm. And uh, let's get to work. And that was so exciting. So exciting. <laughs> That's awesome. We need, to, we need to close the loop on something and that'll tie into your description of the route here. So we talked about E grader and, you know, a 9C being E12 if it's bolted and completely safe. Um, yeah. Bon Voyage is 9A-ish. Maybe maybe yeah. harder. I, I was surprised you didn't say it even maybe higher easier. number. Maybe easier. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Great. Um how how dangerous is it? How dangerous does it have to be at 9A difficulty to also fit into E12? Yeah. And yeah, go ahead and describe some of the gear on the route. Yeah. So I didn't say it was harder because I've actually still, I've still never climbed 9A plus. Um, okay. So I, I didn't want, I didn't want to go back to get into the walk of life and throw out some grade that I've never done before. Uh-huh. Um, Makes sense. So, so yeah, maybe that's, that's actually one of my, one of my next goals as well. Um, but that's another another part of the story. Um, so yeah, it let's so if we if we say that it is nine A, um nine A as a bolted route would be E ten. Considering that Hubble before was was uh, an eight C, well an eight an eight C plus, and it's um and it was an E nine. So at every basically for every sport grade, um and I'm talking about the kind of the base grade of like 8A and then and then the plus grade. Obviously, I'm talking about French grades here, so we're gonna have to convert this into, into American grades. Um, you basically you've got two sport grades in every E grade category, okay. for want of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, and that basically gives you like low end or upper end. So an 8C would be low end E9, an 8C plus would be upper end E9. A 9A would be low end E10. If they're both completely safe. If they're both completely safe. Got it. Exactly. Okay. Uh, a 9A plus would be upper end E10. And then from that, we basically add on a certain amount of, we, we call them D points, but it basically it's like you're adding on E grades, um, depending on how dangerous it is. And so our, our scale, God, we tried to keep it really simple. We tried to... Um, you know, create definitions for every danger um, danger amount that is understandable for everybody. But I don't know if you've ever done something like this. 
you think a situ- you think a subject's really simple, and when you actually start going into it, you realize, God, my God, it's so comp- it's so complicated. It is so subjective. Mm. And so, anyway, we've, we've got we've got a set of descriptions. You can go on the eGrader website, and you can find all these descriptions. But it basically starts out as um, so: uh, you add zero points if it's a Bolton Sport route. You add um, zero point five points if it's, for example, like your perfect Indian Creek splitter. We don't really have these over in, in, in the UK and that much in Europe, so it's not really uh, um, that important. But we thought for if anybody in, in the US wants to try and understand it, it was it was important to, to, to include it. And that basically means that for me, climbing like a perfect Indian Creek splitter doesn't really need that much trad experience because placing the actual gear is so simple. You literally, you've got one size, you just stuff it in. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not really that much to go wrong in terms of the placements because the placement is very simple and you can literally place it at any point over the entire route. And if you had enough gear, you could place a piece every 20 centimeters if you wanted. Mm-hmm. So it would be more arguably even safer than sport climbing. Um, but obviously there's going to be a slight element of actually having to carry that gear and place it, which means it's a little bit more physical which increases the overall effort, which means that your E-grade goes up slightly. Okay, makes sense. So then if you go towards like a standard, we call it standard trad, which is kind of what I think your everyday climber, like going out and, and doing, you know, these these kind of fun mid-grade, tra- mid-grade trad routes on like a like a Saturday afternoon that some of the class, classic gritstone crags in the Peak District are going to be doing. You know, there's there's pretty much gear wherever they want it. Um, it doesn't necessarily feel that more, much more dangerous than sport climbing, but you might have to place a friend over here. You might have to place a nut over there. You need already like a certain understanding of trad gear and the gear needs to be placed well mm-hmm. for it to, to work. Um, and so all of this makes it feel like a little bit more psychologically intimidating and that in turn increases the effort grade and so you get one full point and then we'd go up to two points would be when things are starting to get run out so you've still got good gear um but things are starting to get you know quite spaced we've got 1.5 which kind of fills the gap between these bog standard trad routes and when the gear is like a little bit run out and two um 2.5 so Two is quite important to note that it can be run out, but it really you really shouldn't feel like you are likely to injure yourself. You should be able to take falls off this thing and and still be completely happy to take lots of falls. And you know, most likely at the end of the day, you're going to be walking back to your car totally fine. Um, not I'm not saying injuries will never happen. Mm-hmm. Strange things happen, and I might fall over walking down the stairs here, but um, probably you'll be fine. 2.5, it's still very run out, but you're starting to see the chance of injury increasing. Uh, you know, maybe instead of having a completely clean fallout zone, there might be a ledge. Maybe your gears off to off to the side, so you're going to fall and you're going to pendulum a little bit. You know, there are just a few more unknowns, and you can't fully guarantee that you're going to walk away from it completely unscathed. But the injury will probably be minor certainly not life threatening or you know life ending provided you've placed your gear well mm-hmm. and then you get towards 3 which is like a lot of the classic gritstone scary routes where you're probably going to have a 
some sort of an injury if you fall off. Like it's getting quite serious. Falling off is really a bad idea. Um, should be avoided. But you might, you know, it might not necessarily be life changing or life ending. And then 3.5 and 4. This is routes where really like you really don't want to fall off because you, you're talking about ground fall from from high enough that it's going to be very, very serious. You know, we're talking about significant like broken bones or or, or worse. Um and then four would basically be certain death. So you you're guaranteed that if you and you can never guarantee, sometimes miracles happen, but we're talking about like, you know, free soling uh, more than 20 meters over the floor above a really bad landing. Um, yeah, yeah, no one's, no one realistically is going to walk away from that. Okay. And so all, all you do is you take, you take the, uh, the, the E grade that you've already got from your basic sport, sport grade conversion, and then you add on these D points. And so Bon Voyage, let's, let's say that it's, it's a nine A. So it's sitting somewhere at the bottom end of, of E10, if it were a bolted sport route, I think on our D point scale, it's a 2.5, which means that it, it goes up to a 12.5, which means it's like a fairly hard E12. And if, if it is only 8C+, then that would make it a very hard, a hard E9 as a sport route. But considering that you're then adding 2.5 to it, you then go over into into E12 anyway, and it would be mm. a very easy, the easy end of the spectrum of E12. So regardless of whether it's 8C plus or 9A, I feel like in both situations, based on the danger that I feel like the route involves, then it's then it's an E12, either a an easy one or a or a hard one. Um and maybe, you know, maybe someone comes along and says that it's actually they think it's really safe. Um the reason I think that Bon Voyage is, is, is dangerous. It's not just because it's really run out. It's got some big run outs on it. And they're obviously because it's a traverse, you take kind of sketchy pendulum falls. But right at the end of the traverse, if anyone's looked at some of the the, the videos on, on my Instagram of the route, you can see there's this kind of like almost like guillotine-esque flake, giant flake that sticks out beneath the route. And at first I thought that you would fall past it if you if you did fall off there and um and i never really worried too much about it during my attempts and then i went back a couple of months later for some for some photos and some video in the route and i just got back on the route because i thought it was totally safe and i fell off maybe there was slightly more slack in the system maybe you know something weird happened but i ended up not hitting it going down, luckily, because if I if I did, it would have been it would have been really bad, significant like broken broken things. But on the way back in, so I took a big swing out and I swung back in and I slammed right into the side of this pillar, mm. which basically tells me that you've got enough rope out in the system that you can be completely on top of that thing. And if you were, there's this awkward move at the end where you you kind of like you come to the end of the traverse and you're just about grabbing the arete and you're moving around the corner. And you go from a position where you're leaning really over to the right, where when you fall, you fall rightwards. And so you fall away from this, this, this flake to a position where you're swinging around the corner to grab this hidden hold. And the hold that you have on the face is super slippery. And very often, even when you try the move in isolation, you just dry fire off this, this little pocket because there's not that much friction there. And when you're a bit tired, you can definitely hop off of it very easily. And I was worried then that 
moving around the corner, you're suddenly going in the direction that's going to take you straight onto this flake. Mm. And maybe, I think if you if you have the the clarity of mind that when you do fall, that you you kick yourself away from the from the rock and get yourself out into space, away from this flake, you can still miss it, even if that were to happen and you were to fall off that move. But it's always really hard. These things are easier said in planning. Sometimes when you fall off, like it's a split second thing and you before you know it, you're on the end of the rope. So I'm not sure if if you could. And the reason I thought it finally deserved maybe more than the I'd originally thought it was a two on our scale. Um and and I was telling people, oh, it's a great route to go on, even as a sport climber. It's not dangerous. You're gonna take some big run outs, it's gonna be scary, but you're totally safe. And after that experience of where I nearly hit that ledge, I just I could never, I couldn't live with myself if somebody else went mm. in the route and ended up hurting themselves on it. So I prefer to err on the side of caution there and tell people about it. And then at least they can make their own decisions. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so we'll see. <laughs> Seb actually that told me that sense. when he, when he goes to try it, he's going to take a bouldering mat up and, and loop it over this, um, <laughs> over this blade of rock. Yeah. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense. Like, why didn't, <laughs> why didn't I think about that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean the, the helpful. 20... Go ahead. Sorry, I was, I was just going to say, even with twenty years of of trad climbing experience, sometimes you make you know just stupid mistakes and you forget really obvious things. <laughs> yeah, the, those young, new, pr- fresh perspectives can be really helpful too. Sometimes you know ex- it helps to have experience, obviously, but a fresh set of eyes can make a big difference. I mean, the thing I love about this kind of more objective, scientific approach is that you know you can you can take everything you just described and say, you know, if it's 8C plus, then if it's still a 2.5, it lands me here, but it's probably 9A. And if it is 9A and it's only a two, it also lands me here. It it lands me squarely in E12, you know? So it it just kind of, you can kind of like tweak all the variables and just gain a lot more confidence, which I think is really cool. It's a bit, a bit like what you were saying with Darth Grader the other day. Yeah. Listen to, um, the thing with 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 Pete and you were saying you know like you run all the variables through you change everything you 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 put in the lowest kind of value that you can imagine it being and still if it's coming out at this grade you feel like you're in a pretty good place yeah and that's yeah. kind of where I am with E grader for it basically not to be E12 it would have to be less than 9A and and less than than 2.5 and I mean, perhaps somebody could come along who is super strong on pockets um, and also really, really, really brave. And maybe they would say that, but I just think at that point we're grading for the the very best or worst case scenario, whichever way you want to look at it. And I feel like we should be grading for the average climber. Mm. I think that's also one of the things that makes, to me, um, doesn't make that much sense with the way that we go about grading and downgrading or proposing downgrades to to roots in climbing in general is that my idea is that you know grades are an opinion and it and it should be based on what the average climber's experience is going to feel like in in that route so when once a thousand people have climbed this one 14a at smith rock or somewhere else once all these people have done it and you've got a load of them have said, I think it's 14A. And you've got a few of them that have said, actually, it's probably only like 13D. And a few of them that have said, oh, it felt really hard to me. I'd have probably said more like, you know, 14B. You take the average of that and that fits in with 
with with Joe Bloggs, who's going to go climbing and has like a very generic climbing experience, who's you know not particularly good in anything, but he's also not shitty at anything either. And when we start grading for these extreme uh, examples of you know someone who's super tall or super short, or you know someone who just fits that that route or the box really really well, I feel like we're missing the point because yes, for those people it might feel easier, but they are often the exception to the rule mm-hmm. and yeah it feels like it just devalues a lot of other people's experience yeah i really not to go too far down this tangent but i really like this conversation that i had with uh, nick rummel over the summer he's a mathematician um okay we had a great episode and we also published this extra for patrons where we really dove into his kind of brainchild idea which is like taking this advanced math that he has and creating an algorithm that explains grades better than just putting a number on it. Basically, the simple way to understand it is he thinks that grades should all be a spectrum and he kind of envisions using things like, you know, Kaya or these different apps that we have or 8a.nu where we're like gathering lots of data and putting that information into digital guidebooks where like, you know, if you go to a Boulder problem, it might say, oh, this thing's got a really wide spectrum. It can range anywhere from V5 to V8, depending on your height or your morphology or whatever. Or maybe another climb is a lot more narrow around yeah. 8A because everyone thinks it's the same grade no, no matter what yeah. size they are. Or maybe some climbs have like two distinct bumps where like if you're around this height, you'll probably think it's a V7. If you're around this height, you'll probably think it's a V8. Super or, interesting. Yeah, right? It's It was really cool. I, I, I liked thinking about it that way because it makes sense. And um, rock doesn't offer uh, an even playing field all the time. Sometimes it has a you know a magic way of doing that where the short people have little intermediates and smaller holds that they can grab onto because they're lighter. And other times, if you're below a certain height, you're just shit out of luck and there's nothing to do about it. You know, but um, it's kind of, this kind of captures uh, the the nuance of that a little bit, which is cool. But I, I wanted to ask you this: Why give this an E grade at all? Like before talking to you, my understanding was that um, basically E grades exist in the UK for climbs in the UK, and then everything outside of that, the French use their French system, and the Americans use our Yosemite system, and we call things, you know, PG thirteen or R or X if they're more dangerous. This route's in France, out of trad climbing area. Why? Why an E grade? That's a super good question, and uh, um, I don't really have a great answer for it. My honest answer would be that I don't really see the point either, and I think it would be better if um, if we used, let's say, uh, uh, the American system or um, or a French system with a danger rating like we do with with E grader because that's the way that I tend to think about routes these days. Uh, but just because my experience these days is mainly based out in France and I've got way more experience these days climbing sport routes than I have climbing trad routes. And so that makes sense to me. But the way that I see the world isn't the only way that people see the world. And I can also really hear and understand some people's reluctance to go down that in the UK I think partly because of the history of, of of the E grades, you know, people have been grading like that for for decades, and and they have an attachment to that. And I think the the likelihood of 
me being able to start a movement where all the British climbers realize that E grades are stupid and they want to get rid of them and just use the YDS system or a French grade. I mean, it's never, it's never ever going to happen. So partly it's just to, I guess, protect myself. I, I don't want to go and fight another losing battle. Um, but I do actually, the more I think about it, I, I do think there is E graded does a really good job because it, it simplifies what is a very complex problem, which is an E-grade. But it misses a lot of the nuances of the E-grade. And one of the things that people really criticize, and, and I'm and I'm the first to criticize the E-grade for this, is that without all this extra information that you need about a route, just from the grade alone, you can't really, you never really know what it involves. You You could have... For example, you could have a grade, a route that's graded. I'm just going to pull out a random E grade here. Um, it, it could be, um, okay, maybe I shouldn't do this because at, at this point in time, we haven't talked about the British tech grade, which is another part of the E grade, which in my opinion is completely obsolete and absolutely <laughs> worthless. Mm. But in the UK, it's, it's still used. And so the, the British tech grade is basically, it's a grade of a of the singular hardest movement that you'll find in the route mm. not a boulder problem but a single movement this is when someone says like e10 7a that 7a represents exactly. the hardest so movement it's often the route. it's often confused that the 7a means a sport grade right or a boulder grade. it's not related to but any of the french it, stuff at not. all okay yeah no it's totally. something that we have in the uk that we only have in the uk it's totally ridiculous um the the the, the grading scale itself is incredibly condensed up until 6b maybe it makes sense it follows a similar trend to like a, a another grading scale but basically after 6c 7a 7b someone's just decided that it's not an open-ended scale 7b is the hardest that the human can climb so oh. it's been 7b since the 80s wow and, and it's never gone past there so it's basically completely useless you could have a wow. like 7a starts around 7b plus boulder problem and can be anywhere up to v15 like it's, <laughs> it's just nuts okay it's yeah it's, it's totally bonkers anyway so wow. the, the way that the, the the grading system works you could have an e76b which uh, um 6b is fairly low in the in the in the technical scale of an e7 which would generally tell people that it's a very dangerous route because generally speaking the easier the moves are the boulder it's going to have to be. But it could also be a very, very safe route with loads and loads and loads of 6Bs because the the British tech grade doesn't differentiate between one singular move mm. and multiple moves of the same difficulty. Yeah. So basically from that grade, you don't you don't really know where you are. So you need the guidebook, you need descriptions, you need other information about the route. And that's where the E grade starts to make sense in a very senseless way um because sometimes it's not clear how hard these routes should be because sometimes there are components that you can't mathematically nail down like a sport route is obviously open to interpretation but because we've all got years and years and years of experience on it we can have a fairly decent idea whether it's 8a or 8a plus you know it's pretty much there but let's say you've got a piece of gear that is 
in in a flake or a pocket and the rock around it itself isn't particularly reliable but you don't know exactly how reliable it is because you haven't fallen on it it might be completely fine it might be complete mm. shit and just and break on the first try it might be fine for the first couple of ascents but then break you know three or four ascents down the line and if it doesn't break when you fall on it you are you have a completely safe experience and if it does break when you fall on it you're going to die Hmm. And so there's all sorts of these little things that are really, really hard to quantify. And the E-grade, ultimately, the fact that it's kind of a bit of a mess <laughs> and a little bit random and obscure does a pretty good job because it kind of doesn't really, it never really focuses in on one singular point. It just kind of tells you how it feels hmm. to you. And in a real weird, random way, that's kind of good. Yeah, it's kind of ambiguous and vague, and it yeah, yeah. And so actually, it, it's kind of a, it's a bit similar to how you know in the US when you guys grade a lot of time when you guys grade hard trad routes, you don't actually you don't go into the details and use you know A B or or, or, or C or D. Yeah, you just have a plus or a minus. Five thirteen plus. And I actually yeah. thought that that's a really good system. Hmm. Exactly. Um, I think it's often misunderstood. I think that people don't necessarily immediately get what 514 plus means and what 514 minus means like when i even even me when i see a 514 minus for some reason my brain thinks 513 because mm. the minus somehow makes it less than the 514 yeah. when it's actually you know more like 514 a or b and 514 plus i never think of it being 9a i always think of it as 514 which is 8b plus to me a little bit harder so 8c mm. so it doesn't it, it almost it, it, the concept is great, but I, from personal experience, mess it up a lot of the time. But I do wonder if we wouldn't be better having a system like that, where you know, even with the French grades, you just have like seven plus and seven minus. And my friend used to have have a board in his in his garage we used to train on, and he graded it in in font grades, but like that, and it was amazing because all of the little differences that people sort of had in their own style or their own experience kind of just got ironed out by making things a little bit less precise mm. uh, yeah i think that would be a, a pretty cool cool thing to try out in like the wider climbing world yeah. but the the episode that you just referenced um i'm actually making a really long drive tomorrow so that's that's <laughs> on the top of my nice. my listening uh list now i'll I'm send super it to psyched you. on that yeah yeah perfect really 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 keen yeah um yeah, I mean that was a great answer, but you didn't you didn't explicitly answer the question, which is why give it an E grade at this crag in France? Are there other things graded with E grades there? Does it make sense? Like, are there ever E grades outside of the UK aside from this proposal? Uh, yes, yeah, there are. Anyone okay. that's generally climbed in the UK um, and has some experience climbing E graded routes usually is able to um, understand to some extent what those routes might be and then apply them to other routes. Because I think a lot of people, once you've grasped what E-grades kind of mean, they do make a bit more sense. Right. And it sounds like the French don't have another system for capturing the danger element of, of no, these routes. No, so if you, were, if, you were to grade it in, if you were to grade it in French grades, um, they, they don't even really have a way of measuring like how how exposed it is um there's you know there's 
you guys at least you have you have your your, your PG thirteen your your R R X etc. Et uh, and whilst E Grader has a couple more kind of steps to its danger rating and allows you to maybe be a little bit more precise with that. Um, in France, they have nothing, so you could you could maybe say it's run out. But then, what does that even mean? Like, is it run out dangerous, or is it run out just a bit scary? So, grading it just with a, a French grade would be a little bit reductory. Um, I could have just just used an E grade it uh, grade, um, but considering we had this system, which which makes all the calculations for you, I figured that if I give it an an E grade, but people also know that they can use E grader, they can just work out and they can have they can have it both ways. Mm. That seemed that seemed to be pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah, that's great. Well, James, we've been going for two hours and forty minutes. I really want to respect your time because it's getting towards yeah. eleven p.m. there, and I think, I think you're actually, in actually what your what bedroom. We might need to do is maybe I'll go somewhere else <laughs> in a different room so Caroline can come to bed. Yeah, yeah. I told her I'd be done by by ten. I heard you say that. 11. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So let's pause. Let's let's just pause it here, and I'm just going to move outside. And then we'll check in, and and I'll see how long you're willing to keep going because I'm having fun, but I want to respect your time. So yeah. Okay. We'll pause here, and we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Kaya. I recently started using Kaya, and as a climber, this is one of the most useful apps I have on my phone. Kaya gives you digital guidebooks for more than 50 top bouldering destinations in North America, and more are being added to the app all the time. The folks at Kaya actually partner with local guidebook authors and get exact GPS locations for boulders, detailed climbing area info and navigation, comprehensive topos, and thousands of beta videos. All of that is downloadable and available for offline use. Let's say you're going to Bishop or Red Rocks or Squamish for the first time. You can browse the guidebook, tap on a climb you want to check out, download beta videos for it if you want to, use GPS coordinates that will take you right to the boulder. Even if you don't have cell phone service, you can send the boulder and then you can add your send to your logbook all right there within the Kaya app. This app was created by a group of badass climbers. I'm friends with a lot of these folks. They're super cool people and they just wanted to make a helpful tool that's going to improve the climbing experience for all of us. So check it out. Go to kayaclimb.com. That's K-A-Y-A climb.com or download the Kaya app from the App Store to get started. This episode is brought to you by Chalk Cartel. I have tried a lot of different chalk in my 16 plus years of climbing, and this is my favorite. I love the texture. It's got the perfect amount of grit, and it stays on my hands longer than other chalks. It just does. It's amazing. And if you're trying a long boulder problem or a pumpy sport climb or trad climb, not having to stop and chalk up as often can make all the difference. Head over to chalkcartel.com to check out their shop. They've got chalk available in all sizes. They've got quarters, half kilos, kilos. You can even buy a sample pack for $3. I call that the dime bag if you want to try it out before filling your chalk bucket. And they also do subscriptions. If you are already hooked, like I am, you can have amazing chalk automatically sent to your house every month or every two months or every three months. All of their packaging is eco-friendly, so keeping your chalk bag full has never been easier or lower impact. Again, that's chalkcartel.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off 
off your next purchase and get ready to join the cartel. Chalk Cartel. Great chalk, no bullshit. And now, back to the show. We're back. Cool. So how are you feeling? We've been going, we've been going for a while. Um, I, I just want to kind of share what I have on my outline and then we can decide where to go next. I want your opinion here because I could, I could keep you for just hours and hours, but, but it's getting late over there. So I wanted to, at some point, dive into training with Ali Tor. You trained with him for this route, and I would love to hear what you learned from that and what you guys focused on. Um, it was really interesting to hear about your mental preparation and approach for this route, and you kind of you kind of delineated that like you had this background of being a really bold climber, and you were known for that, and you perform very well under the pressure of potential danger, but you actually don't perform well, and what people might not know about you is that you don't nope. yeah you don't perform well under just regular pressure if it's safe. So I'd love to hear more about that. That's another topic. I'd love to hear more about being a dad. You shared some beautiful things in our voice messages and I want to hear more about that. And then I have some I have some listener questions for you as well. So, but those will be I think relatively quick. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm fine to keep going for a while. Um Okay. So, yeah. Where do you want to go next? Let's, let's do it. I'm having fun too. Um Well, honestly, like training with Ollie and uh the mental side of things and being becoming a dad it kind of all all blends into the same the same sort of thing so that would be basically um you record you're recording now yeah yeah, yeah we're still going everything's okay cool still going. I can, um so basically yeah so so after after rhapsody um i went on this search traveling all around the world looking for my my perfect hard trad project you know really just dreaming of finding this thing that was going to push me a bit further than than anything before and i was kind of by that point i think i was even open to the idea that maybe i would never actually climb it um i just wanted really to feel like i was trying something something hard and uh and then yeah and then arthur came along and uh everything kind of got put on hold because we we planned to have kids actually for since I think since Caroline and, and I met each other. Um, but then I guess like a lot of soon to be parents, especially soon to be dads, when it kind of came down to, to it, it felt really scary, really, really scary. And I just, I remember obsessing so much over everything negative that it would bring and, and, and change in my life because my life at that point was pretty awesome. And, um, and even asking myself, like, do I really want this myself? Do I do I want to potentially lose these things just to procreate? And uh yeah, in in hindsight, again, God, if I if I only knew now, um, if I only knew then, sorry, what I what I knew now, I would have saved myself so much heartache and, and wondering. And I really this is one of the the things that I sometimes I think that life as a professional climber is a little bit pointless a little bit empty like we're not really doing anything to help the world um but finally i feel like helping people on their journey towards parenthood is maybe one of the few meaningful things i can do in my life because it's brought so much importance and so much meaning to my life so much unexpected importance and meaning and if i can help people be more comfortable on their own journey you know, maybe stress a little bit less than I did. And I think that's a really 
a wonderful thing that I can that I can do. Hmm. And that's beautiful. And so yeah, we we decided to we decided to have kids um eventually after a lot of <laughs> long discussions uh between Carol and I and Carol was basically like, "Well, this isn't fair. You know, you told me that we you wanted kids and then now like I think it's the time we should have kids because I'm getting older and now you're telling me you, you don't and that's just going to be like 10 years of my life down the toilet and I was like fuck I didn't think I was such a selfish prick but <laughs> I kind of really like being so free and being able to go wherever I want and do whatever I want and anyway in the end I decided that my life with Caroline was the most important thing and that even if having children was going to somehow, you know, bring some, some negative impact to my climbing life and everything around that. It was totally worth it to keep, to have a life with Carol. And so we, we went for it. Uh, Carol got pregnant maybe quicker than we anticipated, which again, in hindsight was a really good thing because we became parents maybe a little bit younger than we'd anticipated as well, which is pretty awesome because I think nowadays, if I could have been a parent even a few years younger, I would have I would have taken this decision even earlier because it is exhausting. It's so exhausting, <laughs> and um, mm. it's obviously every single child is going to be different. And we've definitely had a few of our friends whose first one, you know, seemed to be pretty cool. Uh, you know, slept really well, didn't cause them too many problems. For us, it wasn't the case at all arthur was absolutely yeah we we don't know what was going on i don't know if we ever will know what was going on um it it seemed like it fixed itself eventually but for the first six months he was just so he was so sad mm. he was just crying all the time he must have been in a lot of pain or discomfort or you know just he basically needed constant physical attention with with either one of us um whether that was emotional or or you know some some physical need we'll never know but it basically meant that life for us was pretty complicated because we didn't really have any time or opportunity to do our own thing because he was always he was always there always needing care and attention and he wasn't sleeping at all at night and so we were just like zombies it was awful I remember my my parents coming out to see see me after about see us after about a month or something they'd been here for the birth so that had already helped a lot and then since then we were just like when can you come again when can you come again because my, <laughs> my folks are back in in the UK and um we yeah we don't have like a super strong support network out here in in France and I can remember like the the day that they were supposed to be coming I was literally like checking every minute like, when are they going to get here? When are they going to get here? Because both Carol and I were just absolutely exhausted. And this that feeling kind of lasted for about six months or so when he started to sleep a little bit better and started just to need a little bit less constant attention. And we slowly started to, to breathe again and to live again. And then from that point onwards, it's just... Maybe we had it so rough in the beginning that everything just seems great now, mm. but it's just been such an amazing journey. Those those first six months, I think I, I everything that I'd feared about becoming a dad was 
basically came to be and i was like okay this is it i've ruined it we had <laughs> such a good life and i think even at that point caro who had been absolutely convinced <laughs> that she wanted to be a mum, was the same and mm. we didn't actually talk to each other about it because we didn't want to verbalize i think we we knew each other was feeling exactly the same thing but we didn't want to verbalize it and make it real yeah that we basically just totally thrown away we botched it like this was a really bad decision to, to make and then and then it just got awesome mm. and it just gets better and better and better on on so many different levels i mean not only when first of all this 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 little thing that you i mean you, you can't even explain how much you love and care for them when you see them smiling and clearly being happy for the first time like that's just the the biggest gift in the world i could have given ev everything that i owned for for that moment just to know that my kid was now actually feeling okay and feeling happy and then as they grow you know you just build this this crazy relationship with them you you teach them so many things like we already talked about but they teach you so many things and that's what's been most influential for me is that so Arthur, I say Arthur a lot because he was our first and I think he's the one that I learned not necessarily the most from, but it was the most impactful because it was going from kind of nothing to everything. Yeah. Um, but I'm still learning so much from from Zoeli because she's our second. We went, we've got Arthur and Zoeli, so A to Z. <laughs> Basically, we were like, that's it. Our alphabet's <laughs> done. No more. <laughs> that's great. Um, I love that. And um, and so they, they're so such different little beings both of them and you know they're both amazing in their own special ways um but from them they just the one i think thing that they've really shown me from a really early on is just to marvel at all the little amazing details in the world and that's something that as adults i think we often forget and we were probably the the worst examples of this feeling like we had to go to the other side of the world to find something new mm. you know the 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 kind of this slogan of the north face you know is never stop exploring and that's kind of the life i was living i was always feeling like i needed to go and find something new something that i'd never seen before to have these amazing experiences and what kids taught me is that you can you can keep on exploring you can keep on discovering things but you can do that right here in your own home or out there in your backyard or or you know at the local crag it just it just takes a little shift in 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 your perspective of things and everything can change. And so that was, I think the biggest influence on my climbing in recent years has, has, has been that has been that shift in, in perspective of not only being able to go to crags that I wouldn't have climbed that before, because I thought they were, you know, less desirable than these world-class amazing crags that, were just out there waiting for me to to go and and, and explore, um, but also in the way that I looked at success and failure, and you realise that that too is something that we we put on ourselves. It's this extra weight that we add that we feel like adds some kind of meaning to to life and meaning to this experience that we all call climbing, and it just doesn't really even need to be there and a lot of the time it takes away it makes it it makes it worse and harder to deal with and i was so so bad with that before um for some reason i still don't understand why this is again i think it goes back to doing what you've 
what you've done as as a teenager or as a younger um, climber that sticks with you. I've always been pretty good at dealing with the actual physical, um, well, dealing with the mental pressure of like a physical injury. So when I when I knew I couldn't fall off a route, I wouldn't fall off the route and I would actually climb better. But when it came just down to doing a really hard route that I could fall off because it was completely safe, be it a hard trad route or or a, even worse, a hard sport route. I think hard trad routes were a little bit easier because there was like a complexity to the placements that took my mind away from the pure performance element. But hard sport routes were flipping so hard for me. I just, and hard sport routes with other people watching I, it was my worst nightmare. And I just crumble always under my own pressure. And I think as well, growing up on the gritstone, which is a very, very, very conditions dependent rock, I, I don't think this helped um, this pressure because I basically realized from a pretty early age the difference that climbing when conditions are good and climbing when conditions are bad can, can make. And I became this mega condition snob where if the conditions didn't feel right, I wouldn't even put my shoes on. Mm. I'd just literally, I'd, I'd go home from the crag and I'd, you know, my skin condition was so precious to me that I'd rather not climb on that day and go back the next day or even a few days later than, than risk, you know, wrecking my skin and trying something pointlessly. I used to think it was pointlessly to try things if I wasn't succeeding at them, mm. which is ridiculous because it's only through trying things that we get better and we learn and we progress. But for me, it was all about just ticking, just just getting to the belay, clipping that chain, kind of existing in this almost like Groundhog Day-esque stress cycle where I actually kind of hated the experience of red pointing, but I would just do it because I knew at some point I'd clip the chain and it'd be over and I could move on to something else when I just start the whole same shitty thing over and over again and it was it was yeah it wasn't always super fun and then so kids came came along and i think i didn't expect this to happen this all just sort of happened randomly and i'm just trying to interpret why what first of all happened and why i think it happened but basically what happened is kids came along I was sleep deprived. I was uh, really badly injured. I think partly because we were sleep deprived. Um, I'd barely been climbing. and technically should have been in a terrible shape. Yet when I'd go to the crag, I'd do some of my best routes ever. Some of like my, my, my fastest ascents of my hardest sport routes ever started happening just shortly after I became a dad. Sort of in the, in the, in, in the first, like maybe, six months to 18 months i was just like what is going on here this is this is weird am i getting just really lucky and then the more it kept happening the more i realized something concrete was was there to be understood and what i think that is is when i climb it so climb with kids it's not easy but it is really totally possible as long as you follow a couple of simple rules and the first most important thing is you got to go at their rhythm so if you try and impose something on the kid that isn't going to to work it's just a nightmare waiting to happen so like for little kids the most important thing is they need to get enough sleep so whenever you're at the crag that's your one goal is to basically make sure they're happy when they're playing and as soon as they start to get a little bit 
uh, grouchy, that means they need to go to sleep. So you need to make sure they've got a little happy area to do it. So we we figured out all this this system that we could take to the crack with us and you end up with giant backpacks, but it's worth it, believe me. Because then you make this little nest and they can go to sleep and then that's amazing and then they're going to wake up and they're going to be super happy. And that's great. But whilst they're asleep, you have some time for yourself, <laughs> which as a parent, you never, ever have. And that means that when they're asleep, that is your time to climb. There is, there's no waiting for like, when's the sun going to drop behind the the mountain and, you know, the crag's going to go in the shade. When's the wind going to pick up? When are conditions going to be good? You climb when your little one goes to sleep. And that is something that would have absolutely terrified me Mm. a couple of years ago. I would have just thought that was absolutely impossible. But yet when you don't have a choice, that's the only time that you can go climbing because otherwise you're, you're playing with the kid or, you know, maybe the kid's going to have a meltdown at some point because uh, he's hungry or he's lost his toy or, you know, on your day at the crag, he's going to be cut short. The only time when you can really focus on, getting a route done and belaying your partner is when they're asleep. And what started happening for me is I started sending all these really hard projects like in full sun or like third day on when I was tired because you just go in these routes and you just think, fuck it. Like what? <laughs> like, I don't care. I'm, I'm a dad now. No one expects a dad to do anything. I'm also <laughs> massively, massively sleep deprived no one expects a sleep derived person to be able to function like this is my third day on it's it's hot all these excuses for why you don't have to do the route suddenly are now on your side and you just don't care anymore and you because climbing something that you can't or at least we couldn't do in the same way we'd done before which was literally wherever we wanted whenever we wanted however we wanted it becomes so so much more precious that when you've got this tiny little moment to do the thing that you love to do without any of the stress that you previously built around yourself, it's just like, it's, it's perfect. And suddenly all these things just start working. <laughs> and I, I can't, I can't guarantee that this will happen. I wouldn't ever say, you know, go have kids cause it'll make you climb harder. <laughs> but, f- but for me, it, it is being like the one revelation. It feels almost like cheating. <laughs> they literally to stop, to stop giving a shit about, about, what I climb has been the most liberating thing that I've ever done. Mm. And more importantly than all of, all of that, you realize that, you know, even if you do fall off and you, because I'm not perfect, you know, I'm not like a Buddhist monk that perfectly controls all my emotions. Occasionally I will really want to do a route and occasionally I will fall back into these, these old selfish habits of wanting something too much and putting all this pressure on myself and falling off and being disappointed. But then you come back down to the floor and you've got this, this, this little thing there just looking up at you and all, all they want is for you to, to love them and to play with them and to show them that the world is a really fun place to, to be. And you can't afford to like kick your chalk bag into the bushes and scream and shout and be pissed off at this stupid thing that we do, which is rock climbing because it is ultimately pointless like there's, if if anything, becoming becoming a dad has just shown me that whilst climbing is amazing and I really do love it, there's there's way more important things out there in life. I love that. Thank you for speaking to all of that. 
you're very welcome. So that's the, that's the mental side of, of things. Yeah. Um, I want to I want to quickly double click on some things. Do you have any like tangible? I have two questions. First, tangible. Like, do you have any like practical, tangible recommendations for for new parents or for people that are considering becoming parents who are climbers? Like, any like piece of gear or like I don't know something that you needed that helps them sleep at the crag or anything like that that yeah. has been like amazing, life changing for you guys. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 an easy one. So the best thing for us, the most important thing that we've ever uh, invested in, and luckily it doesn't cost much money because there's loads of baby stuff out there that costs an arm and a leg, and a lot of it's rubbish. Um, believe me, we tried a lot of it <laughs> in those first six months. Um, best thing that we've ever had that helps our crag life with kids is th- are these little pop up tents, and um, you know they 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 fold down to, I mean they they're definitely not small and they're not particularly light but like i already said when you're parents your bag is going to be enormous so you just embrace that um get a little tent get loads of toys the more toys the better <laughs> because the happier the kids are at, at the cliff and it, it's it's not to say that you need to spend loads of money on toys because honestly kids can be happy with a pile of rocks and a few sticks if you are there to spend time with them and to you know to, to show them how to stack them and and, and to show them how to you know, make creative things, but there's going to be a moment maybe where you want to focus on, on your climbing a little bit more and your partner's probably going to need to be like you, or you're going to have to be like your partner. And those moments, having a few toys, like Arthur, our son, he absolutely loves little cars. So his backpack's always full of little cars and he can entertain himself for hours, like making racetracks in the dirt. Um, Zoeli loved books. So we bring loads of books to the crag and we just, sit her down, make a little safe, safe zone away from any falling rocks. Um, and just throw all these books on the floor. And she literally just like surrounds herself in all these books and looks at the pictures. So mm. tent is amazing. The one we have is from a company called Derian, which I think is comes from like the, the Netherlands, but I'm sure there must be a, a version that you guys can easily buy over in the States. Um, and I think it costs something like 30 bucks. It's really, it's really cheap. Um, what else do you need? Um, not necessarily something that you need to bring, but something that makes life really easy is choose your cliffs wisely. Mm. So no one's probably going to be hiking up to the fortress of solitude with kids. (laughs) Yeah. And if they do, they're probably not going to have a super fun day. Yeah. And you can probably make it work. But there's just way easier options. And even if the the route might not be the route that you want to get on, um, and, you know, the crag might not be the dream crag that you want to go and check out. At that point in your, your life, you're going to be so psyched if you can just make a climbing day work. Literally, you could be on the chossiest, like shittiest piece of, of rock around and you'll have the best day ever as long as you and, and the kids are happy. And basically... From that point onwards, you just you just take it from there. You just go baby step after baby step. You start to go to, you know, cliffs that are further away, um, cliffs where maybe the the ground at the bottom is a bit more complicated. Um, I would say though, it it never make never try and make things too complicated. There are things and there are places that we just won't go. There are really amazing cliffs over here in France that I'd love to go climbing at more often. I just don't go. Occasionally, I might go with 
someone else if I climb a day on my own without without Kara or you know she goes somewhere without me. But most of the time we we love climbing with each other, and, so, and that means we love climbing with our family, and that means that our choice of cliffs is more limited than it was before. But that's also okay because, like I said, kids show you that you know you don't you don't need the latest, the greatest, the most perfect thing to be happy. You can you can be happy with whatever's in front of you. you just need to look at it in the right way. And we've had some of the best climbing experiences ever on cliffs close to our house that we we'd never been to or we'd stopped going to before because they were so bad <laughs> so yeah mm-hmm. it's uh it's, it's pretty it's pretty wild how it really changes your perspective that's cool and maybe maybe this is all just you know the power of genetics and you know we're programmed to want to do this so somehow psychologically we have to adapt think it's okay <laughs> objectively maybe it is terrible but <laughs> I don't I don't mind if I'm living this crazy like hormone induced lie like life is amazing with with kids <laughs> and, and that's kind of that's all that matters to me. Yeah. That's awesome. It all leads to the same thing, which is great. Yeah. Okay, the second question I wanted to ask you at this at this point before we dive into the training side of things. Um you talked about wanting to be helpful towards people, like something that would make you proud of this conversation is to talk about being a parent and help make that transition easier for people. Yeah. What would you, so if you could go back in time and talk to James at the beginning of that year leading up to having Arthur, what would you say to yourself? Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a super good question. You know, I talked about this a lot, actually. Um, we're kind of trying to put together a film project at the minute about about bon voyage but about all of this and one of the one of the ideas we had was that um if we could do like a like a deep fake thing with old james and a new james so i could somehow like have this conversation in real like thanks to the wonders of modern video and, and and computers whether or not it'll actually work or not so if anybody out there knows about making deep fakes and things like that, then send me a message because I'd really love to, to talk about it. But I think um I think I'd I'd say a lot of I'd say a lot of things to young me. First would be to get a haircut because some of the some of the photos I see of me like 18, 19 years old with these like long, floppy, greasy hair. It just <laughs> looks so bad. But anyway, more importantly than that, I'd say um Don't push things like too much. Don't try and force things. I think I think that's maybe where I fell um, so badly when I was young because I really wanted more more than I had and more than yeah maybe even more than I deserved at that at that time. Like take take your time, um, give give these things the time they need to develop, and most importantly, or go climb some other rock types go on trips, go climb some sport routes. The more able we are to be really like truly objective, the wider our vision of the world is, the better it is. Like the more we pigeonhole ourselves into a box, and this is the same for climbing, but just for, you know, the the world in general. Like this is when, this is when people really get into hot water, really just start to argue with each other senselessly because they, they're not able to see the world from this the their 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 opponent's point of view so yeah i'd i'd, I'd say that 
go go out there, live your life, have some fun, and then come back to all this in a couple of years and <laughs> see see how you feel then. Mm. What about having kids in particular when you were afraid that becoming a parent would change your lifestyle and take away this amazing lifestyle that you had found with Caro? Is there anything you could have told yourself that would have made some of that fear, dissipated some of that fear and got you more excited to become a parent or put some of those fears at ease? Yeah, de- definitely. Just that um, life as a parent is going to be is going to be incredible for reasons that you can't even comprehend right now. And and honestly, I don't. I know we can all try to be, you know, as empathetic as possible and try and and try to put ourselves in other people's shoes and imagine what people might be feeling. And I'm sure people can do a really good job of getting close to that. But I'm not really sure that you can genuinely know how close you're going to feel to this little human that you've created that is a part of you and the person that you love the most in this world and and the responsibility that you feel to them but also the joy that they're going to bring to your life on a on a daily basis and it's not all i've got to be careful because i'd also really like to be told of the of the dark side of it of those first six months of how grim it 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 can be and Whilst, whilst I think that we lived a fairly intense period there, it could have been a hell of a lot worse. Like we were so, the thing that I think I've been most thankful for with both our children is that we, we had like two healthy children. And that, that is just the most amazing, amazing gift. I can't, I can't even imagine what it what it would be like to have a child that has health problems and actually it was one of the 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 biggest questions we had is after having arthur and him basically being being perfect saying like okay do we really want to roll those dice again mm-hmm. like we've we've got one kid this is you know this is already amazing he's a wonderful little boy we're having so much fun yes i think it would be great for him to have a sibling because both Cara and I had had uh, brothers and sisters, and they were both pretty important to us. But he doesn't need one. You know, we can give him a lot of love and attention, and we can try our best to make him feel um, the things that he might otherwise miss without having a having sister. And do we want to take that risk of bringing another little person into the world, and you know, maybe having something go wrong? And in the end, we did maybe because I don't know, maybe maybe we're still selfish or you know ego focused, and maybe we just wanted another kid. We wanted a, a girl because we already had a boy, or maybe we really felt that it was important for Arthur to have a a brother or a sister. But when both both of them came along and they were both amazing, amazing, that again, like the A to Z thing is a it's a funny joke, but for us it's really serious. Like we've got we've got so much more than we than we ever wanted than we ever deserved like we we just have to be thankful for for this because we are just incredibly incredibly lucky mm. um so yeah so it's going to be wonderful you will never imagine how good it can be it can also be terrible and you can also never imagine how terrible it can be <laughs> but those terrible moments will probably at the end of the day, feel like a blink in the eye in comparison to all of the wonderful things that you're going to get to do over the next 
however many years yeah this goes on for beautiful yeah it's it's really cool it's really cool i don't know if i don't know if you've thought about it or if you have any any ideas um it's always difficult for me to talk about it because i know having kids is a sometimes it can be a really complicated subject you know you 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 never have any idea about what the other person's situation is um whether they whether they want kids whether they 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 can't have kids whether they've there's issues in their past life that makes it really complicated so i'm always a bit wary about kind of just throwing this this stuff out there yeah but at the same time just if there are people in in the same position that we were in i th- i genuinely think it could help and could make the whole experience just yeah a little bit less less terrifying totally i i think you're doing that certainly by talking about it but even just by sharing your life and showing people that you can still not only kind of scrape by and still get up some roots but you can climb your hardest you can climb your best you can be peaking you know at what 37 you're 37 with two kids yeah exactly yeah that's one of the that's really one of the most most meaningful things that that we get when we bump into random people at the the crag you know that we've never met before or, or we get a message on on instagram or something and people just generally tell like thank you for for all of that because I was going through the same thing. Like I was dealing with those sleepless nights and feeling like this would never come to an end. And I would never, I, I, you know, wouldn't survive another day and seeing you guys make it work, gave me courage. And now like we, we actually, yesterday we had some, some friends of friends turn up at the house and, um, it turned out that they'd had a kid just after we had, and they'd really been following along with our journey, especially Caroline's journey and the the mother had a really long conversation with Carol, just thanking her for, for all of this. Mm. And so, yeah, when I, when I said this is, I think probably the only meaningful thing that I do in my life as a climber, I think, yeah, (laughs) I genuinely mean that. Mm. I think, I think climbing matters. That's a whole, that's a whole rabbit hole we could go down, but yeah. um, But I also, I also know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I mean, we, we focus a lot of energy on ourselves and our own pursuits and, the routes that we want to do as climbers. Um, so it's certainly not altruistic and, you know, curing cancer or anything, but, but I, I have changed my mind about that. I used to really feel guilt or maybe that's what's changed for me is I used to really feel guilt around putting this much time and energy into my own climbing and pursuing something so seriously that doesn't really make sense. And, um, what I see now is like, well, I mean, whatever it is, it's led to all the best things in my life. It's, it's led to a lot of my closest friendships and deepest friendships and not all of them. A lot of those people have come outside of climbing too, but most of my favorite memories and places that have become so special to me that I never would have visited otherwise. And now this like really meaningful work that I get to do sharing stories like yours and, um, showing like turning you into a human not that you weren't before but like taking this person that we see in magazines or in videos and stuff and like that we might see as just a series of climbing accomplishments if we've never heard that person's story before and humanizing them and showing people that like no we're all kind of on the same journey together you know it looks a little different for each of us but but um i can you know look to james and connect with certain parts of his struggle and his stories and his darker times and um, find inspiration and in the way in which he's, he's faced those things and turned them around. Like 
yeah, it's a real gift to be able to do that. And all of that came through climbing. So how can we say that it's not meaningful? And yeah, you know, like there was a time where I was in a much more obsessive performance oriented uh, chapter of my climbing where that wasn't the case. And it, it really was not healthy and it wasn't serving anything really. But at the same time, it did lead to where I'm at now. Like it's been the vehicle for all the growth and expansion yeah. in my life. Right. So I, I think it really matters. Um, but you, it's also, no, you, you are, you, you are hundred percent right. And I'm, yeah. I think I'm, I'm putting too much weight on like the trying to do something meaningful to the, to the, to the world and, and not enough on us just being, being a good person through the fact that we're happy because we're doing something that we enjoy. This counts for so much. I used to tell people actually before before becoming a parent and when I was trying to justify why I thought climbing was okay for me because this is something I've been doing for a long a long time now justifying it. Um, I used to say that it was like throwing a throwing a happy pebble into into a pond, and um, whilst I didn't feel like it did anything for the greater good of humanity climbing made me a really happy person. And like you said, it's brought me all of these incredible experiences and without climbing, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be a dad. I wouldn't have met Cara. I wouldn't have these kids. And even the simple act of going out there on the rock, whenever I've been the, the most down I've ever been, climbing can always make me, you know, just think about something else just to, to enjoy that simple pleasure of being out there moving on rock. And the fact that all of that makes me happy makes me smile you know smiling it's infectious when you when you meet somebody and, and you smile at them like they can't help but feel better about themselves and later on they smile at somebody else and in turn those people smile at somebody else and i, I used to and I, I still do feel like the more people can spread happiness in the world the better the world's going to be and so that was my justification of, of climbing before as well which i think is quite similar to to what you were saying yeah Yep, throw that happy pebble in and, and watch those ripples just <laughs> go out yeah. far and wide. Yeah, it's it's both. I mean, it's important to be aware um, of how it is both, how climbing can be a very self-focused thing. And yeah, maybe it all comes back to balance, mm -hmm. like we balance. talked about earlier. So, so, so important. So I, I think, sorry, I think... Um, I guess maybe from people listening to this outside, like sometimes it might seem like we feel like we've got everything figured out and, you know, we've, we've, we've found this, this balance and, you know, we're, we're all okay with, you know, being these perfect selfless beings. And that's not at all true for me. The key is accepting that we are selfish and I need a certain amount of selfishness in, in my life to, to feel like, James and I had a lot of this to do with especially to do with trad climbing obviously the risks that are associated with that and whether or not it's something that I should stop when I became a parent and the feeling of not wanting to stop and not being able to understand why I didn't want to stop because everything you know factually speaking was just screaming at me this is stupid don't do this if you do this you are running the risk of cutting short everything that has now become so meaningful to you. Why would you do it? You don't need this in your life. And eventually, 
actually Caro summed it up really well. Um, so Caro, her, I never met her mum, so I, I can't actually, you know, really speak to this. But this is from stories that she told me. Her mum was like the the perfect mum who gave everything to her kids to the extent of where she basically gave up on her own life and her own dreams to to make sure that her kids had everything. And unfortunately, when they also grew up on this small island called Reunion Island, which is in the middle of the South Indian Ocean, so it's really far away from from everywhere. And what generally happens is when you know when when kids get to eighteen and they need to go to college, um, there's not really any decent colleges on Reunion Island. So most of the kids, it's a French island, so most of the kids end up going back to France and studying somewhere in France. Um, and Caro's sister, she's two years older than Caro. So at 18, she left and she went to France and Caro, because of her high level sport at the time and uh, her competition climbing, she also moved to France exactly the same time as her sister. Mm. So her mum basically went from having her life devoted to her children to suddenly having no children there any, any more. And, and her life basically fell apart and long, very painful story short is that she ended up committing suicide and um and, and carol had to deal with that hmm. and so you know you have i'm not going to even start to pretend that i understand mental health issues like you know the, people might be dealing with when when suicide comes comes along to the party but obviously her mum felt like there was no other way but from someone who was giving absolutely everything her entire life to her children and then making her children live through that experience. Mm, Yeah. Caro is pretty convinced that it's really important for her and it's really important for us to maintain some of our own original lives. Some of the things that make us so happy so that we can continuously give this happiness back to our kids without being reliant on those kids as being our source of happiness, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's kind of the only way that I've, I'm, I'm justifying um, doing occasionally these dangerous trial routes, which, you know, potentially could shorten my life because it makes me feel so alive. And that's something that I've done for so many years. It's, it's just an ingrained part of me and to get rid of it, feels like it might cause ultimately more damage than than i don't know but then again this is all you know if we could predict the future everything would be super easy and i'm (laughs) sure that if one day something really bad did happen to me i'd probably come back and tell the james now that sat on this sofa talking to you to stop being such an idiot and just Mm. give it up because it isn't worth it so i i don't have the answers to all this i just think that at some point we need to accept that we're not perfect and we might be selfish, but it's just about trying to figure out how we can make all these things balance up as best, as best we can. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing to add to any of that. That's yeah. Thanks for, thanks for (laughs) telling that story. Um, yeah, it, it really paints a, a clear picture. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. It, it it breaks my heart that Caro had to go through that. It breaks my heart to think about her mom and that loss that she experienced that was so painful that that's what she ended up doing. And 
yeah, I mean, we just we just have to take care of ourselves as as people, right? Completely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And on a on a weird tangent, bizarrely, I think that the the one thing that kind of made it all okay for Caro was um, was her climbing, and especially the fact that she was um, a high level climber in in France, and you know where she, she had such a such a really strong support network around her, because um, what's actually really interesting right now is that if you take Caro and her sister and you sit them down and you talk about the subject of their mother, Caro is hundred percent able to talk about it. She can, she can laugh and, and, and smile and even, you know, make jokes about it. And her sister is just incapable. She just breaks down into tears. Mm. And I think that's because of the work that Caro had to do um, with her mental coach basically so that she could continue to focus enough to be able to maintain her her climbing at that that incredibly high level mm, yeah so yeah so climbing again you know I was we was I was saying that it was that it was pointless but in 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 one way it saved Caro mm. and then it meant that she is the, the person and hopefully the the amazing mother that she is today yeah well yeah beautiful where do we go now how are you feeling <laughs> We can we can go on to um why don't we go on to training because that's maybe yeah. feels like a bit of a lighter subject than uh yeah <laughs> than what we just touched on yeah and it it sounds like it's connected to you becoming a father and, and stepping into the yeah. role of parent um is that just because you had less All right, I think we'll call this one there. That feels like a good place to end this episode. James and I did go on to talk for another hour and 15 minutes. We pivoted. We talked about training. We talked about how Ollie changed his training and some of the finger training that he did for Bon Voyage. We talked about his sense of tribe and lexicon a little bit, some of the other hardest trad climbs out there. We talked about climbing his first v15 in his mid-30s and what else did we cover we tackled some of your questions i got some questions for james from patrons he gave some advice for new trad climbers he talked about how he makes a living and how he supports a family as a pro climber and some of the work that he does on the side and a lot more it was super good if you want to check that out that extra is available right now for patrons you can sign up at patreon.com slash the nugget climbing. There's a link right there in your podcast app if you scroll down. And there's a seven day free trial. So you can go over there and sign up right now. It just takes a few minutes to sign up. You can try it out for free and you can cancel at any time. No questions asked. Obviously, I would love it if you continue to be a patron. I could not do this podcast without the support that I get from patrons. I know it's just five bucks, but it really does add up and make a huge difference. I could not be doing this podcast without you guys. So I hope you'll consider signing up and supporting the show. And if not, that's okay. Just keep on listening and sharing the podcast with your friends. That helps a lot too. Thank you so much for being here and for listening to the very end. I really appreciate you guys. I hope you have an amazing week wherever you are tuning in from best of luck with your climbing this week. I hope you enjoy it. Much love to all of you and we will see you next time. 